Friday, June the 19th, 2020. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. This one's going to be getting out a little bit late, so going to try to roll through the uh, the Friday portion of the racing. We'll get to a little bit of the baseball news right off the bat. We have a Saturday Belmont conversation with Darren Zocali. We spend about 40 minutes going through the Belmont card, uh, races 1 through 10, and then we hit the uh, that Belmont race, and then the big one, Survivor Series 1997. Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali, we go back in time and we recap the Montreal screw job. So, a really long recap because there's so much to talk about in one of the most uh, infamous polarizing events in the history of professional wrestling. Let's kick it off with uh, some of the news in, in, in baseball. Um, right now, we found out that the players proposed a 70-game regular season. This was a plan that was immediately rejected by MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred. The owners, just in the last few days, for, um, proposed a 60-game season, so we feel like we're getting a little bit closer. The players want some things, 70-game season. They had from July 19th through September 30th, full prorated play, spring training to begin June 26th, expanded playoffs to 16 teams in 2020 and 2021, a um, couple of other small things, 50-50 split of incremental TV revenue, minimum pool for playoff, salary advance forgiveness for players in tiers 1 to 3 of March agreement, opt-outs for players who are high risk or those who live with high risk individuals, um, permission to sell advertisements and patches on the uniforms, and there will be a, uh, a universal DH, it looks like, at least for the next few years. So there was a long conversations between um, Tony Clark and Rob Manfred, the head of the Players Association and uh, the Commissioner of Baseball, they went back and forth. The owners felt more like, uh, after their discussions, the Rob Manfred said he felt like the deal was about to be done, and then Tony Clark came back and said he felt like there were still things that needed to be worked out. So one side's on 60 games, one side's on 70 games. Hopefully, we can meet in the middle. Right now, what uh, baseball is talking about, they don't want to play into October. They want to make sure that the season is done uh, before the beginning of October because now Dr. Fauci was saying it would not be a good idea for them to be playing deeper into the season. So we'll see uh, what ends up happening. You know, We all know that the, the league has the ability to implement a season around 50 games if they can, they, if they want to. They, they can do that. So if there's no agreement... I think in the next few days, that's probably what's going to happen. But hopefully something happens and we can get at least in the 65-game range or so. We'll continue to monitor all that news in the world of baseball. Let's hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll get into the Friday horse racing. We have best plays for Churchill, Belmont, Santa Anita, and we'll get to a late pick four for Pleasanton. Mm, big time sports are on the way back and that means we're going to be playing a lot more daily fantasy sports i want you to check out this new daily fantasy website and app it's called thrive fantasy you can go to the website thrivefantasy.com or download it and download it and then put a few bucks in right away and, and check it out and test it i think to me that's always the best way to test things out and when you do if you sign up for a new account, if you deposit at least ten bucks, you'll get an and you use the promo code Gino G I N O. You'll get an instant ten dollar bonus credit. It'll come right to your account within minutes. So you nothing wrong with getting a, a free ten bucks right back just for using that promo code G I N O. You can get an opportunity to play 
And, you know, once baseball, basketball, football is is back, we'll be playing in all sorts of contests. What they do is they have a DFS contest for prop bets. So if you're someone who plays over-unders or totals, or if, if prop betting is a, a big part of your betting, or maybe that's just something that it interests you, check this out this week, the PGA. The RBC Heritage on Thursday Featured contest, $20 to enter $1,000 first prize They have over $4,000 guaranteed in prizes Remember, use that promo code G-I-N-O And when you deposit at least $10 You'll get that $10 instant bonus credit Right back, it's $20 to get into that contest On Thursday They also have tons of free rolls So pay attention for those where it Just like it sounds, yeah, it's a contest Where you can win money for free, it costs you nothing to enter They have free rolls on Friday $100 free roll for League of Legends If you're interested uh, For LEC on Friday, $100 free roll They also have a $50 free roll For LCS on Friday Remember the key, when you sign up Deposit 10 and use that promo code G-I-N-O That'll get you that $10 instant bonus If you have any questions about Thrive Fantasy Give me a, a, a shot on a on Twitter, on Facebook, on social media I'll help you out, I'll explain it to you You select the prop bets You have a couple in case of emergency selections And it's a ton of fun If you play daily fantasy, if you wager If you bet a lot of props You will fit right in with Thrive Fantasy Make sure to use that promo code G-I-N-O Get your past performances out We're going to go through some Friday racing for you we got to quick hit this though because uh Want to get get this out in enough time for you to listen to the Friday racing? I've just been a little bit backed up this week. Uh, um, my poor big man boxer dog, he's he's struggling a little bit. He's up to thirteen and a half. So keep uh, keep my man Rolly in some of your thoughts and prayers. Uh, he's just you know, getting slowed down with old age, as uh, as happens to all of us. So let's uh, let's uh, let's let's make a little money so we can go get a nice uh, a big bone for Rolly. Get over to Churchill Downs for Friday. June the 19th We're going to get to race number 4 for the first play At Churchill It's going to be the number 3 Midnight Fantasy Who is a 4 year old filly Who was second last time out on the turf Her turf uh, Sprinting on the turf Her two turf races have been pretty good And if you look Two back She you know hooked me a mischief She was in pretty tough company Against Minute to Stardom um, Not long back uh, at Delta Downs Talk about her last race she got squeezed back at the at the start. She was eighth of nine. She was about eight lengths off. She angled to the outside, and she had a really good late rally going. And she just doesn't have to be so far back. Expect her to be much closer today. She's always shown kind of tactical speed, and she just broke slow. But she came she came closing very nicely last time out, and she'll sit closer. Midnight fantasy, the number three. If we can get around seven to two, we'll make a win wager. Make sure to use her in all of your exotics. Let's get to race number six. Over at Churchill, we'll go to the number six voting control. I'd be shocked if this horse is four to one or anything close to it. Came made uh, came back uh, from uh, quite a long layoff. Hadn't raced from November of 2017 to May of 2019. Came back, won that race, and the second, third, and fifth place finishers all came out of that race to win. Yes, he hasn't raced a whole ton, but we know. Him in particular, this guy has come off of a long layoff and fired a big one. Uh, I guess the mile and eighth may be your only concern. It's a, it's a little bit far, but I think this is a horse who you can really key around in some of the late exotics. I just don't. There's not much in this race that scares me. And voting control looks like if he shows up with 
kind of like a B plus effort. I think everyone else might be uh, might be running for second in here. No, I just I, I couldn't get excited about anyone else. Let's get to voting control here. Is maybe a late exotic single a horse to build some of your exotics around? We get to race number nine at Churchill Downs. And I'm going to go to the five in here. This is our first level allowance. They're going to go mile on the turf course here. And Confessing is a nice four-year-old filly who was favored last time out at fairgrounds and was over a good racetrack. She was tracking mid-pack. She was about fifth, sixth, but she was behind a runoff speed horse. Uh, ended up about 10 lengths off of it and was in some traffic when she wanted to go. And she just didn't seem to love the, that good going late. I think she'll enjoy it if the the... Turf course is a little more firm, so confessing a horse to use in all of your exotics. If we can get around seven to two, we'll make a win wager on confessing. Let's get you over to Belmont. The first play for Belmont comes in race number four. Let's go to the five creative style. These are 32 claimers. Creative style uh, hadn't raced from February to June the 12th, came back against 25 claimers, going six and a half furlongs, and got steadied at the start and took up. And lost mall momentum, was outrun, ended up about 12 lengths off. And the winner of that race was sitting second, pressing just off the leader. Creative Style got going late. Now is going to stretch back out to a, a mile and a 16th. And I, I, he's going to be sitting a little bit closer today. He wins at six and a half, seven, and a mile with his running style and what he's shown when he's gone longer and stretched out. He's going to be close in here, especially with uh, an aggressive rider like Saez aboard. I think you're getting a, a, a jock upgrade here. The number five, creative style. We'll make a win wager and we can get around three to one use in all of your exotics. Let's get you to race number eight for our next play. And it's going to be the number six, and that is Summer Bourbon, who last we saw. He was facing open 40 claimers, and he broke well, but he ended up taking back. He was fifth on the inside, and he got caught up in between horses, and he was just kind of going up and down early. He made a little bit of a bid into contention, but he's back in with New York Breads now, and he's going to go second start off the three-and-a-half-month break. I'm just expecting a much, much better effort from the number six, Summer Bourbon, in race number eight at Belmont Park on Friday. Uh, about three to one is is the uh, the value line for Summer Bourbon. We want to make sure we get at least that uh, for our win wager. And then move to race number nine. What's wrong with the one Maxwell Empire? So let's go through his career. He's done very little wrong overall on the grass, and most of his work has been going long on the grass. But look at his lone sprint. He was a, a, a runner-up behind Turn to Side in a race where Turn to Side was able to get a major, major tactical advantage over Maxwell Esquire. That was back in November. And since then, Maxwell Esquire has a race going long on the grass where he ran pretty well against First Level Allowance Company. And now he's going to be turning back to six furlongs. My only concern is the rail draw. I wish Maxwell Esquire was drawn just a little more towards the outside because down on the inside, sometimes you can get shuffled back. Second off the layoff, turns back to a sprint. You look around. You got Jack and Noah, who's really quick. Old Chestnut has the opportunity to show a lot of speed. He used to be really, really fast. He just kind of hasn't had it um, for a while. Turned aside, we know, is going to be close. Would it be shocking to see Shimmy Rock right there close to the lead? And then from the outside, so street. They could be lining up in here. Maxwell Esquire could get a great trip. Come rolling with one of the best finishers in the game, Joel Rosario aboard. Make sure to use the one, Maxwell Esquire, in your exotics and make a win wager if you can get around 6-1. to one. Let's get the past performances for Santa Anita out. We've got three best plays over at Santa Anita. 
We'll start it with race number one at San Anita on Friday, and let's go to the three, Eastern Ocean, who was a really good runner-up when he uh, stretched out last time out on the turf at Santa Anita. He ended up taking back, and he was sitting about fifth, sixth on the inside, but he was only a couple lengths off at the most, tucked inside, and then he started traveling well. He wanted to go. He ran right up onto the heels of the leader. He got in tight, kind of got backed up into, and he ends up losing a few lengths, he moves back into a tight spot on the rail. He's really trying hard. He ends up finishing beaten less than a length when it's all said and done. And that shuffle back, losing a couple lengths, probably cost him the race. Eastern Ocean could be a good horse to key in on in your early pick five. If he's around five to two, let's make a win wager. And let's move to race number five at Santa Anita. The nine is a price horse who I'm expecting to get played a little bit. Struger, he is a horse who was a $900,000 purchase. He tried maiden special weights on the dirt a couple times and didn't really show anything. Dropped in for maiden 20s up at Golden Gate, and he actually ran really well. He was in a race where he was chasing lone speed that day, and he was second. He's not a horse who I think wants to be chasing quite like that. I think he'd be a little bit better sitting back and making a late run. I'm going to use Struger, the number 9, along with the 3 Sly and the 5 Most Sandis Factory, who will probably try to steal this race. Sly is the one that they'll all have to hold off. He has probably the best race that any of them have run on the grass, although it was back in May of 2019. But when you just look at, at how these horses stack up, Struger doesn't have to do a lot, a little bit of improvement to compete with these, but there's no reason why there's no monsters in here, and we saw that this horse does at least have some ability, even if it was against the Maiden 20 group up at Golden Gate, because that wasn't a, an awful group, so uh, we've already seen it become a productive race with the third place finisher. I think a couple of horses already have come out of that race to win, so nine with the 3-5 in the fifth at Santa Anita, and then let's go to race number seven at Santa Anita and and we'll go to the number six in here Noor Khan who's going to try the turf we'll try sprinting on the turf and this one's damn won twice on the turf I think Noor Khan trying the grass for the first time for Phil D'Amato with Pratt keeping the faith this horse won nicely first time in the D'Amato barn Noor Khan make sure to use in all of your exotics we'll make a win wager if we can get around five to two we go from Southern California up to Northern California, get those past performances out for Pleasanton. It's opening day at Pleasanton, and our good friend Chris Griffin will be calling the races up there at Pleasanton. Love playing these uh, no-cal fairs. It just reminds me of uh, when I was a kid going to the racetrack, playing uh, you know during uh, Del Mar or during uh, you know Hollywood, and, and playing mainly it was Del Mar when when I'm, I'm playing a lot of the fairs and. Uh, Let's get ready to, to play opening day Friday over at Pleasanton. In, we'll play the pick late pick four. Uh, I'll give you a horse in race number one. The number five, Sierra Dance. We'll know pretty early on how he's going to fare in this race because he really should be loose on the lead. There's nobody consistently as fast as him. Now, with a horse like Bowie Howdy, he has some speed. If they decide to gun him, he might even be faster than Sierra Dance, but he just doesn't consistently break well enough or is not consistently asked for enough speed. Maybe against a group like this on the big drop, he will be. But I think at around 4-1, to one, Sierra Dance is worth the wager. The value line for me is about 3-1. to one. Hopefully, we can get that 4-1. to one. That's the number 5, Sierra Dance. Make sure to use in all your exotics. In the fourth race, it starts the late pick four, just seven races at Pleasanton on opening day. To me, the, the key horse in this race is the two, 
Engracia. She's a first-time starter. The dam of this horse was a seven-time winner. She's produced uh, five foals. Three of them have won so far, including a horse named Crazy Profit, who uh, earned $194,000. The barn is only one for 19 with first-time starters over the last five years. That's fine. They're capable. That shows me that in a spot, they can win with a first-time starter. And this is a race that has absolutely no monsters. You have three horses who it look like are going to take the bulk of the action. You figure the three, Pacific Silence. And this is a filly who blew a four-length lead last time out. She's blown a couple very big leads. She cleared the field, and she put away the filly that pressed her. She opens up four lengths in the early stretch, and then she gets nailed late. Obviously, the cutback in the dropper is going to help Pacific Silence, but she's got to show that she can do it on the dirt. The five sweetener looks to me like the most logical winner in this race on the big drop, second off the layoff. Some of these races that he ran, uh, or she ran, this five-year-old mare early in, in 2019 at Santa Anita would just would dust this group. And she has every right to improve with that race under her belt. She'll probably be right on the lead or very close to it. So th- you'd imagine the race really goes through her. And then what do you do with the seven on the outside? I mean, just the fact that Hernandez jumps aboard, you have to take a look. But she has shown nothing. She's been her own worst enemy. She's really slow out of the gate. She was a $160,000 purchase who's now in for made in eight. Um, she does put a couple starts together. So on the big drop alone, you're going to look at her and, and probably give her a look. I'll include her in the uh, the late pick four that we play. Um, but I wouldn't, if you don't want to use her, I'm not going to convince you to use her at a, at a short price. I would prefer, I'd be fine with two, three, five. I'll probably end up using the seven as well in race number five. I'm just going to go too deep in here. I'm going to use the three Delta form. Who's going to be a pace factor here on the cutback showed speed going six and a half now cuts back. This is a horse who was in a couple of those quarter horse races at Los Alamitos in April and May and was able to keep up with some of those horses early on. He's really quick. He has the opportunity to break on top and I think steal this race. Double Tiger looks like the horse to beat. On the drop, on the cutback, back to dirt. He's finished second five times. It feels like this these little tweaks will really help put him over the top in here. So three and five in race number five at Pleasanton. In race number six, we're going to use the number four, Mime, as our top selection. This is a filly who... Hadn't raced from March to May, so just a couple months. She came uh, back on May the 23rd. She was sitting close up. She settled on the inside. She's about third. Got up to got off the rail over the two path. It was about four or five lengths off, and got up to within two lengths before flattening out. That was going a mile. Now you're going to cut back to six furlongs. She ran well in her debut, her career debut uh, in July at Pleasanton in 2019. So you get the cutback, you get the drop as you're moving from. Open Company was facing Open Company last time out. Now you're back in with Calbred. So, yes, that is a drop in class. I think there are plenty of things to like about Mime, who should be ready to fire a really big effort in here. Carolina Mia feels like the one to beat. Another one who's been facing Open Company was very competitive in a couple starts at Golden Gate. And what I like about her, and look at her last two starts. They were both sprinting. One of them, she was right on the lead. Uh, The other, she came from eighth in a field of nine. Um, and came closing and was only beaten a neck. So I think she really has the opportunity to show multiple dimensions and win this race from anywhere. She's the one to beat, but the four mime might be the one to bet if we can get anything around, uh, you know, f- seven to two or so. We'll close things out with three horses in race number seven at Pleasanton. It's going to be the number six, Zelaya, 
who broke on top, sat third, got up to within two in the three path, and I thought ran pretty well on that May the 29th race, which is a race that uh, a few of these come out of. You'll also see the one Tony Tupac had come out of that race, who I think is, is probably the one to catch from the inside. I think they may have to even send a little harder. She's been one that shows speed um, throughout her career. I think from that real draw, if she sneaks away, she could be tough to run down. The four, Gifty. Her maiden 25 win on, on March the 1st was better than any win, any maiden win in this field, any ho- any race that any horse in this field has run. So she has the probably the most upside in here. I think the four gifty is a horse to include. I'm okay with taking a swing against Daniel the Dreamer, who just was really flat in that same race behind Zelaya and behind Tony Two Pocket last time out. So let's use the six, one, and the four there at Pleasanton. We'll play a late pick four, and it looks something like two, three, five, seven, with three, five, with four, six, with one, four, six. That's the late pick four there at Pleasanton. So we'll be uh, handicapping a lot of the Pleasanton races um, over the next, uh, uh, I guess, month, month and a half or so um, during uh, during that time. And hopefully we'll bring on Chris Griffin, the track announcer, and be able to catch up with him and handicap some races with Chris. Let's go from Friday to Saturday. We will talk Saturday Belmont racing card with Darren Zocali. We're going to go with races 1 through 10. We discuss each race, some horses to play, who we like, and then we get into the Belmont at the end in race number 10 with uh, some of our selections there. Let's hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll get into Saturday Belmont with Darren Zocali. One of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast is Cindy Carava, full-service realtor, and I am here over in Glendora at Coldwell Banker with Cindy Carava. Cindy, how was 2019 for you? Tell us uh, a little bit about what uh, what kind of stuff you were working on. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. Uh, 2019 was just really great. Uh, I had a great year uh, selling homes all the way from Altadena, Arcadia, Monrovia, out to Upland and Ontario just recently. Um, the market has, has been uh, really good. Um, we're looking forward to 2020 with an increase in home prices about 5.8% this year, opposed to last year where it was a little softer. We saw uh, more like homes averaging about 3.5% in increase in value. Um, it's also looking great for buyers. Uh, the interest rates right now are gonna be staying under 4%. So if you've been on the fence about thinking about buying a home, now is the time to do so with interest rates still staying low. And you offer more services than just the buying, selling, and leasing homes. Tell us about some of the other services that you offer and what a full service realtor really is. So you're right, Gino. Besides me being uh, a full-service realtor of uh, finding properties for my clients to buy or selling their homes or finding rentals for them, um, I also have a plethora of resources like uh, handyman, contractors, electricians, plumbers. Uh, I even, if like I said, if you're thinking about getting a home loan, I actually work with two great lenders that I can recommend to anybody. And you're all over the internet, social media, websites. Let us know some of the places where we can find you. I know I've seen some reviews on Yelp and on Zillow. Everyone always has positive things to say. Everybody hears me raving about you all the time. But where can uh, everyone else find out information about you or contact? Thank you, Gino. Yeah, I am on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, And uh, you can contact me on my website, which is www.cindycarava.com or my email, which is cindyc.realtor at gmail.com, 
or feel free to call or text me on my cell phone, which is 626-394-6400. Cindy is awesome. She's one of the kindest and most genuine people I've ever met. I promise you, you will enjoy every minute you interact with her. So thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, Appreciate all of your support from That's What She Said podcast. Thank you, Gino. Have a great day, everyone. Very lucky here on the That's What G Said to have some really, really good friends and some people who have, uh, in particular, over the last, you know, five or six months, um, once everything started with uh, the coronavirus, we started doing a lot longer shows on That's What G Said, but I can't really do that myself. I don't think anybody would really want to hear me for three or four hours all just talking, just me. And one of the men who have really stepped up and helped me, I mean, we, you hear him every week with the wrestling, the old wrestling recaps. You, we, we preview in, you know, uh, we, we talked NFL draft stuff. We previewed backlash. We, uh, we talk racing all the time. And we're going to go through the Belmont card this weekend again. So that's what G said. Very lucky to have the help from Darren Zocali, good friend DZ. We got a, a Belmont card this weekend to talk about. It's a, I think people are, are disappointed. This is a little bit lackluster. We, we don't have deep fields. We don't necessarily have, um, you know, races where we might be able to find 20 to one shots, but I try to think of it like, Hey, three or four weeks ago, we didn't even know what was going on over there in New York. We, we weren't sure when the racing was going to come back. We weren't even expecting days where we'd be able to get four or five graded stakes races. It's a bummer. Would I love to have some bigger fields? Yes, but I'm trying to look at it from that point of view. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, look, obviously this is not the, you know, the optimal card that we would hope for on a Belmont Stakes Day, but there's a Belmont Stakes, there's a series of stakes races, and you know what? The undercard is actually pretty cool. It you is. Know, got some really good races on the undercard. I think you can find some value in some spots. So, yeah, I agree with you. I'm going to take a similar approach. We've got a Belmont Day. It may not be everything that we hope for, but uh, it's there, and it's something that we could sit back and enjoy, so I'm going to do just that. Shorter fields, a key to them, it, it's... It's more about beating some favorites, you don't, you know, and or and or capitalizing and maybe singling or doubling up in some spots where you feel the favorite just isn't going to get beat. That's that's really what this, this day is going to come down to because we're going to have a a few races where they're are projected to be very short price horses on paper. I don't think that's going to be the case in race number one when we get things started. This is actually one of the better betting races uh, on the day where we have a a good field going a mile in the turf course. These are high level maiden claimers, maiden $75,000 claimers. So not necessarily like the top, top tier maidens, but these aren't low level maiden claimers by any sense of the word. We'd imagine the, uh, the, the Chad Brown entry is going to take a ton of money with conglomerate traffic pattern. You have a couple first time starters here for Clarevich stables. Um, I thought there were a couple horses to look at. I, I thought, you know, both the seven and the nine are very interesting horses to me with some upside. Holy Emperor, who on March uh, the 7th was on the grass, the only time we've seen him on the grass in three starts. He ran really well that day. He, w- he was going a mile and eighth. He set the pace. He ended up fading for third. In his next start, it was a race that was taken off the grass. He was showing a little tactical speed, but he faded in the slop. I think he'll get a big jock upgrade here. I don't think he's like a need the lead type. He just kind of got the lead in a race that was going pretty slow. So I, I expect him to be forwardly placed. I think he has a little bit of upside. And then for me, Darren, the speed, first time on the turf uh, for a horse who he doesn't have a lot of immediate siblings that have done well on the turf, but he sure bred for it with the Dynaform or the Malibu Moon there. So I thought the seven and nine were horses to at least maybe use in your early pick five. Well, this is going to be boring, Gino, because those are my two, my two horses. <laughs> there we go. Nice. 
literally going to, I mean, I, I'm only going to use two here. I think so too. Uh, look, yeah. Uh, I, I get that the Chad Brown horses could be tough, but look, I mean, combined, they cost $320,000 at sale. Klarovich is willing to lose them for, you know, 75,000. I hate that. So I just hate it. I, I hate that angle. This is not a spot that I. This is a spot that I would let Chad Brown beat me every time, uh, especially if he's gonna, yeah, especially if he's going to take a lot of money. Um, you know, the rest of the field is pretty questionable. Uh, and, and for me, I mean, look, you know, Scano is is three to one money line favorite. Is zero for nine lifetime. I'll let that beat me every time also. So for me, the seven and the nine look rather logical, and and maybe that's a little. Yeah, and maybe that's a weird thing to say when they're both six to one, but they're both dropping down from maiden special weight. They both have shown some ability. Uh, Holy Empress, the dam of Holy Emperor, was a, I believe, a three-time turf winner. Uh, striking Speed is, is out of Moonlit Bay, who was a Mid-Atlantic uh, turf winner of three or four starts as well. There's turf up and bottom there. I, I think both of them are going to be prominent early. I think they're going to be prominent throughout. I'm keying off them up and down in tries, and they're the two horses I'm using in the pick five. Yep. Completely agree. We move on from race number one to race number two. And, you know, it's it's a bummer that the Woody Stevens, which we generally see like the Woody Stevens and the Kings Bishop in those races get these big fields with a ton of three-year-olds that might have, you know, been trying to get on the Derby Trail or Triple Crown Trail and end up cutting back. We still get four pretty damn talented horses to the inside. Like, this isn't a deep group because there's only five horses, but I I really wouldn't be shocked if any of the inside four went off favored I guess Maru, I, I would be a little more surprised If that one was favored over the other two But if you told me no Prol or Mischievous Alex Or Echo Town took the most money It really wouldn't shock me There are four pretty What would look to be evenly matched horses in here I think to the inside And I know you've always been a fan of no Prol I like him in this spot too I think he might be the fastest He gunned from the inside He seems like a horse who's always had ability You just put a line through that Rebel and we saw what he wants to do sprinting last time out. I, I kind of like him from the inside draw, but I do think that of those inside four, like you can make strong cases for any of them. Yeah. So, I mean, no parole. I think what we've discovered is he's, he's got to go a thousand miles an hour and he's got to make the lead, especially from this spot on the rail. And I think with the, the key to this race, what it comes down to is can echo town run with them early. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think mischievous Alex is fast enough. I know you see, you know, you see a horse that's forwardly placed off of it. You take a look at the fractions and the races that he's coming out of. I don't think Mischievous Alex is quite quick enough early to go with no parole. And I think Maru is also probably two or three lanes slower. So can Echo Town run with him early? If the answer is yes, anything can happen. I mean, look, even shoplifted. Okay? He, could, he, know, he could get the trip if they all are kind of yeah. pressing up each other. Yeah, early on. The cutback closer is always dangerous in a spot like this. And he's got races that are fast enough to win this. If things set up for him, he wouldn't shock me either. It's a real difficult difficult spot. Um, I, to be honest with you, none of them would shock me. I don't really have a strong opinion. Uh, it's going to have to be a spread race. I, I'll, I'll probably single no parole on my A ticket just because I think he can make the lead. And I don't think anybody could run with him early. And if he breaks well, and if he's got a two-length lead down the backstretch, I think that makes him very difficult to catch. Yeah, I'm going to be approaching this very similarly. I like no parole quite a bit, and think I'll play some tickets where I go, uh, you know, a single with no parole. I'll play another one or two tickets where I maybe punch all 
Because I can see any of them with with the two Asmussen horses. That's what concerns me a little bit about leaving Shoplifted out. Because if he's thinking, okay, Santana, let's go real quick in this race, or at least put all the pressure on. Maybe even go like because you have two horses that complement each other very well here. So if Echo Town goes a little quick and it sets up for Shoplifted, that would not shock me. I, I, you know, it's not a twelve horse field in the Woody Stevens, but I, I like this small little Woody Stevens. It's a it's a it's an intriguing race to try to pinpoint because it's all going to come down to tactics, jockeys. If somebody sends early, are they going to sit like mischievous Alice? Doesn't seem quite as quick. Um, let's go no parole, trying to run them off their feet from the inside. We move to race number three. I think the question in this race, Darren, is can we beat the outside two Phillies, Indian Pride and Mrs. Danvers? They kind of look pretty tough on paper. Yeah, obviously. I mean, Indian Pride ran really well in her second lifetime start in the Raven Run. Broke her maiden in fine, in fine fashion. Mrs. Danvers, I mean, same thing. Good maiden breaking win as a two-year-old. You know, out of the two, I prefer Indian Pride strictly because she's the four-year-old. Um, you know, against the three-year-old in Mrs. Danvers. You know, both of them come with questions off the layoff. Mrs. Danvers a little bit more. She hasn't raced in, in 10 months. Uh, that's a lot for a filly with only two lifetime starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Indian Pride, you know, maybe I have a little bit more confidence with Chad having this one with the screws completely tight the first time, whereas Shug tends to be a little bit more patient. So out of the two, yeah, I would probably say Indian uh, Indian Pride would be my preferred of the two. I don't necessarily think anybody else in the race is, is fast enough to beat them. Yeah, I don't either. I would love to try to take a shot against horses like this coming off of the bench, but, you know, you want to... You want to get caught up into Palomita when you look through the rest of the field, but then I feel like she might get bet too much, yeah. like for for her her actual chances to win this race. So because I just don't love her, and we, you know we start eliminating like I'm not a Carrizo or Sea Sparkle, Maiden Beauty or Forever Change. So you're like you're eliminating, you're down to these two. I think I might you know take approaches like how you did maybe in the pick five where we kind of can can play uh, the two deep in the first, then we can maybe go all and maybe we use just we pick or choose here with either Indian Pride if you like Miss Danvers a little more. Um, you know, having Indian Pride singled wouldn't probably wouldn't be a bad spot in here. As we move to the fourth race, we're going to see a super talented horse from the inside. The only thing about a couple of these races today uh, on Saturday at Belmont, where you're going to have some really short price favorites. One thing that I did notice, and Decorated Invader is one of them. He's got a crazy wicked kick. I mean, he's done very little wrong in his career. He was super impressive in the Breeders' Cup when he had trouble. But he's not like a standout on numbers and figures. In this group compared to some of the others in here He's definitely the most accomplished But when you see him even later with like Tis the Law and some of these horses They don't tower over others On the buyer scale or on some of the other Speed figures that you're looking at Which you generally get when you're going to get a really Short price favorite I guess that would be one of my Only concerns with Decorated Invader I mean and, and the fact that he you know He's a stone cold closer so if you Ever catch a really good horse who has a little more Tactical speed that's definitely the way you Can beat him does it seem like this race though is kind of kind of set up? I just I like him. I have a tough time leaving him out. I just and and I just don't know with his running style. I want to try to make a case against him. Yeah. I, so what, what I did exactly what you said. I, I prefer proven strategies for the reasons that you outlined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a little bit more speed in the race, but he's been tr- proven to be versatile enough where he doesn't necessarily need the lead to be at mm-hmm. his best. I think he could sit just off. Uh, you take a look. I mean, similar thing. You know, both these horses ran well in the Breeders' Cup. In fact, this horse had the lead, you know, a sixteenth of a mile from the wire at 116 to 1. Um, 
And he Decor- was only a couple lengths behind Decorated Invader in the race before that in the summer. Like, it wasn't like he got trounced by him. Correct. Decorated Invader has one start back in March, 88 fire speed figure. Good race, no question about it. Proven Strategies has progressively gotten better. Last two races, 87 buyer speed figure, 89. Both right there. Both have progressed to similar points. Why would I take the 6-5 to five on a stone-cold closer when I'm getting 3-1? to one? Now, granted, look, they may come a little bit closer post-time. We'll have to see. But for purposes of the multi-race exotics, I'm going to lean a bit more heavily on proven strategy. Yeah, and that makes a ton of sense. I, to me, the real key is looking back at some of his races and seeing that he can't sit. He's not a need the lead type horse. So if for some reason, you know, you get Vanzi or even maybe, um, you know, uh, the maniac who well, I like, I'm talking about in a second, ends up going, which I don't think will be the case. Proven strategies can sit, but he's going to, you're going to have a horse who's going to be a better price and you're going to be getting a few length jump at the very least on a horse who's got better, a better last out speed figure, a better last out buyer figure, which, so to me, when I'm looking at these favorites to try to beat, the ones that don't tower over you on speed figures might be the ones to try to beat. And one like Decorated Invader, who's going to come have to come from the clouds, might be one to try to beat. I'm going to include um, the uh, well, the I'm going I'm to include the Maniac in here. <laughs> Maroon Maniac I was getting caught up in my words here. So his debut race. He's at Tampa in February And he's second behind a horse named uh, Domestic Spending That race has actually come back very live That horse came back to win his second start He won a first level allowance There were three next out winners out of that day And actually a horse who was in that race Named Quid Won today Or we're recording this on Thursday He actually won for Maiden 40 When he dropped in for Maiden 40 In his second start since that race So it's become a really productive race so far I think this is a horse who, who just kind of got the lead Because they were going slow and he was better in the race Taken off the grass at Tampa He's going to need to improve, no doubt about it But I think he can I think he can jump up He has the style where maybe he sits right behind Proven strategies or maybe he sits third Where there's one or two going The same kind of assuming that he gets the jump On decorated invader I think he comes out a better, uh, a good race And and so I'm going to give him a little bit of a shot of a, of a As a price horse who can you know maybe include In some of the early pick fives but um, proven strategies would be the absolute A horse in here for me And then, you know, depending on how I set the rest of the pick 5 ticket up I wouldn't care talking you, uh, you know, out of playing against Decorated Invader Unless you're going to be singling a bomb in one of the other legs And you want to make sure you hit this thing Yeah, and, and I agree with you, Maroon Maniac uh, I like him quite a bit in this spot too um, You know, I, I don't think you're going to see him on the lead I think he's going to get the kind of trip that you talked about you know, the winner that beat him in that first start came back for you. The Chad Brown horse came right back to win the allowance race. I think there's now four next out winners from that race. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's a key race. I think he's got he's got a chance to be a, a very good race horse. And uh, I, I have like no his problem. pedigree, too. It's like a yeah. good combination. It feels like there's there's the grass, there's a little stamina, there's a little speed in there too. It just it's a it's a nice pedigree. It kind of overall. I, I agree. I think this is a good horse and, and maybe one and even if he comes up a little short here, maybe he runs second or third, keep an eye on him for down the road. I think he might be one of those like a nice late developing three year old in a year that, hey, you know, th- that that could be a lot this this year because we we still got some big races down the line for the three year old. So uh Maroon Maniac here. As we move on to race number five at Belmont, this is a maiden special weight. Um, Rare Stripe is the morning line favorite here, and he he has a very quick work. 
on June the 13th over at Keeneland going 47 and 1 fastest of 97. He was squeezed a little bit on both of his on both sides at the start. He ended up about 8 lengths off. He moved through up to about, you know, 4 or 5 off and then he got in tight again. He he was behind Dr. Post who we're going to see running in the Belmont later on this card. It was a it was a fine effort. He had some legitimate trouble. He got a big figure for that um, in finishing second. It's just one of those things where I think a horse like him and a horse like the Angry Man. I look at the two of them, and from just like a price perspective, I would much prefer the Angry Man, who I thought he got he got stuck in a bad spot. He was he was a little slow, and then he moves up, and he's not that far out of it, but he's on the inside. He's he's right on the rail, and you get that shuffle from the inside. He ends up losing a few lengths, and now instead of being Nick fourth, he's back to like eighth or ninth. He's behind horses. He's up on heels. I. I think he can he has the opportunity to sit a lot closer. That's what sometimes is hard with these second time starters who break poorly. Like if the angry man or rare stripe was much, much closer in here, that would be no surprise, Darren. Much closer early in the race. Yeah, it's a difficult spot. Plus, you have a top clutcher first year who's out of a damn was a stakes winner on the far outside that you know I'm really not sure what to do with. Uh the angry man is a horse that I like quite a bit as a prospect going forward. I, I actually think moving forward though. I think there's a horse that might actually do his best running on the grass. You, and you um, can see they got a turf work on there, too. They're, they've been thinking that at least a few weeks ago they worked him on the grass. Yeah, I mean, the, the summer front is by war front. The dam was a was a winner on, on turf. It's turf pedigree up and down. So I think uh, it's kind of surprising that he comes back here in his first start. He's not on grass. But, you know, maybe, you know, look, maybe the connections Phoenix Thoroughbreds want to see if the horse can run, you know, well in dirt. So, you know, I think he's got a bright future. Uh, I get why Rare Stripe is favored. You know, it comes out of a, a key race, but I, I think there's a lot of different ways you can go here. I think this is a race where you really need to get some coverage. Um, I'm not necessarily in love with the Chad Brown on the inside, but, you know, I mean, in, in this spot, can he can he win as a four-year-old against a field of, of three-year-olds? Yeah, I guess he could. Uh, o Trouble comes out of a race that was won by Tappet to win. Last year at Saratoga, that horse is a main contender in the Belmont Stakes later on in the card as well. I would use the Angry Man. Uh, I would use Rare Stripe and maybe the Pletcher First. Or I might have to go five deep yeah. here, Gino, in order to get through it to try to catch this pick five. And let's say maybe the, the Firster doesn't have a ton of speed because he's going seven in his debut. And maybe... Yeah. The, the two the two horses who didn't break well maybe they are horses who are a little slow out of the gate like the angry man and rare stripe well then man rare trouble could get a great trip in here he might be the one to catch if he just breaks alertly and he came out of that key race you talked about with Tabitha to win who's you know going to be a major contender in the Belmont and the second place finisher that day complexifier came back he's multiple stakes place so yeah for me definitely the two like I'm at I'm Probably three deep at the very least with the two, five, and seven, and probably in some shape or form the inside and the outside. Like, it, you know, I don't want to get beat by the Brown and the the Pletcher in a race I don't think is that strong. But for me, I think it, I'll, I'll key more on the f- two, five, and seven with O Trouble and the Angry Man is kind of my top two here. Um, in this fifth, we move on to race number six. We get the Grade Three Wonder again. Phillies three years old going a mile on the turf course. It's kind of a bummer that this field came up very, very short here too. We just have a field of five. I think the the most important horse in this race, and it's not because she's the most likely winner in this race, to me is Antoinette. 
Because if she's able to put a little bit of pressure Or get in front of Sweet Melania That can change the complexion of this race If Antoinette is taken back a little bit And Sweet Melania breaks and gets out early She might be really tough to run down Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head I think that's what this race comes down to entirely Um, I'm a big fan I'm a big fan of Highland Glory as a horse Mm -hmm. I think she's in a really tough spot here. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's just I like her just, so much. Yeah. It just doesn't look like the race sets up well for her in a small uh, field. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 looking at the race on paper, look, I hate betting chalk, but if Sweet Melania just coasts out there like Newspaper of Record did, you know, last week, I, I think she's going to be incredibly difficult to catch. And you're banking on a horse in, in Antoinette who broke her maiden on the turf and, and she showed some speed, but I don't think she's as fast as sweet Melania. I, and Melania can sit. If, if yeah, for some reason they're, they're intent on like Mott and, and, and Velasquez to say, Hey, let's try to get out front with Antoinette. Melania can sit off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, she's either going to be on the lead with Antoinette chasing or Antoinette's going to get to the front. And, and because the other three don't really have much speed at all. Uh, Sweet Melania could sit second and just sit the easiest trip in racing. Um, I yeah, look, I like I said, I hate picking chalk. She looks really, really tough to be in the spot yeah. for me. And I think this is the start of that like late mandatory payout pick five. So if you're gonna play it, maybe you, you skip it and you play the pick four, or you just kind of single her and move along. Because I agree, I wouldn't be shocked if Highland Glory down the line at the end of the year is maybe one of the better horses out of this race. I really like her. She had some legitimate trouble last time out, like a brutal trip. It just I just feel like late on the scene for second or third. That just it just screams what yep. she's going to be doing in this race. Uh, as we move to race number seven at Belmont Park, we have a first level allowance here for New York Breds, Phillies and Mares, three year olds and up. I mean, for me, the horse that I start with is a horse um, towards the outside who adds the blinkers. The number ten, light in the sky. I'm looking at this race. It's six furlongs on the turf, and Light in the sky has has been on the grass a couple times. One of them against New York Breads broke. She broke her maiden. The second time she was facing a an op, a group of open company uh, optional first level allowance over at Laurel, and that was a race that sent her to the bench for you know the from October till now. She comes into a newborn who actually does pretty well with their new acquisitions. Seems to be really training well for the newborn. They're good with the blinks. They're good off this kind of a. They're good off with the new the new horses that they've taken care of and. Now I think she beat the horse My Sassy Sarah who is going to Take a ton of money in here I think I'm going to have to use light in the sky in a lot of The exotics here with the blink she's going to be my top Pick yeah I don't I don't blame you there at all um, I, I thought this was a very difficult race mm-hmm. As these New York Braves, You know turf sprints tend to be uh, I mean there's a couple in here I, I think the three single verse is worth A look yeah um, You know her lone start on turf was one of the best races of her career. She's got speed. Coming back off the layoff is no problem for this barn. Uh, they do that at a 20% clip. The barn does it at a 25% clip, making the first start for the connections. There is turf pedigree here. The dam is a stakes winner on the grass. There's turf uh, winning siblings as well. Uh, I I think the four stronger than you know, obviously, is a must use. And mm-hmm. Completely just agree. Yeah, just getting better and better for the Duarte stable. Um, you know, has speed, but can lay off as well. Seems to fit very well here. Uh, I'm against the five just because she's one for 15 in, in a field where facing horses with upside. Um, but even even the six noble jewels. So 
Yeah, she only has one race on paper that looks, you know, good. But her last two starts, she went too long, probably. She yeah. didn't want to go. She's in the race in that in that August race at Saratoga. You can yep. completely excuse the race that's taken off the grass and even make a legitimate excuse, like you said, going too long. And then we haven't seen her since August. So there was probably some sort of a physical issue after that they, you know, they sent her to the bench for a while or or to the farm to to figure out. She's done like nothing wrong sprinting on the grass. No, I, I, exactly. Look, I, I think taking a look at this field, uh, again, I think single verse has a shot. She's 8-1 to one in the morning line. I think Noble Jewel has a shot. She's 8-1. to one. I think Light in the Sky has a shot. She's 8-1. to one. And I put them all on a very similar level to my Sassy Sarah and to uh, and Stronger Than You Know, who are probably going to be the two favorites in this race. So that's how I'm going to bet accordingly. I'm going to probably key off the 3, 6, and 10 and try to get one of them home in the top spot to spice up the exotics. We move to race number eight, which is the grade one acorn. And um, we have to mention this when we talk about this race. What what makes this race as a handicapper, and this is why we kind of sometimes feel like us as betters and customers in this game get a little bit screwed over, is we have this Philly gaming from the rail for Bob Baffert. And we've all heard the rumors that Bob Baffert had two horses test positive um, on May the 2nd over at Oaklawn Park. One of them was in the Arkansas Derby Who we assume was charlatan because we heard that Nadal test, did test positive And his re, his results came back clean And and we've never and, and Jay Privman even said He's been asking about this Every day since then And we don't know anything about this Philly Who reportedly had a positive test You know a month and a half ago Now she comes back here where she's going to be An even money favorite in this race It's just it's It's a weird it's a weird thing to ha- to have kind of hanging over, which we've seen with other horses throughout. You know, like it happened with the pun- with a ton of the the Joe Sharp horses. You know, uh, down at Fairgrounds earlier this year, and it's just it's weird when when something like that happens, and it's they're already racing before we've got this figured out. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and and you're kind of betting blind because of that. You know, and uh, you know, does she, she comes come off a huge effort, and maybe. Maybe she was enhanced a little Because if you take that last effort Where she obviously jumped up and improved And then she's a Baffert Philly, right? She's she's talented, Baffert's talked about her, liking her a lot They spent a ton of money on her But if we're only playing her off her maiden win Instead of what she did In that big effort where she jumped up And, you know, her speed figure got Really, really high And remember too, that was a race that was kind of like A controversial speed figure race That they were talking about when they made the buyer after with speech Because speech ended up running a number That was much higher than any of the numbers that she had run before She's also yeah. a talented filly But it, it there, there's just something weird about that race to me I totally agree with you um, I don't know if they've all come back to race or not I think speech ran second to the Sandy to Oaks, correct? Yeah, to Swiss Skydiver Yeah, yeah she was well beat Yeah, yeah well, she got beat by four or five lanes mm-hmm. uh, The horse that ran third came back to run a Churchill on the grass So you don't know what to make of that um, I'm not sure about anybody else. I didn't go too far down the line. Uh, I think Aino Elmers was in that race, and she didn't run well in the dog win. So, uh, you know, Speech came back and ran okay. I don't think that race has come back particularly strong. But I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I prefer casual anyway. I yeah. think casual. I think casual might be you know sensational. Um, from what I've seen in her two starts, where she's paired up figures. Uh, I thought the way that she kind of sat. And held her spot in her first start, waited, 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 and then just kind of went into the breach in between horses. I mean, that showed me that that that's a professional racehorse breaking her maiden first time out for a filly. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I thought her last race, I thought she was well in hand. I don't think Santana got to the bottom of her there. Um, you know, Asmussen's got these sprinters this year. You know, that freak over in uh, – that ran out in Churchill last year. That could be the same. Oh, Ooh, my God. Geez. It's it's wild. It's wild what he's got. I think this filly has a shot to be, to be a potential star. So uh, I actually prefer casual, and my feeling is that casual and, and Gamine are going to be much closer in odds than the even money. Three to one morning line, I think. I think so. I, I yeah, I'm I'm preferring casual to gaming also. I'm gonna make a little case and use like I would be okay going maybe Lucrezia and Casual and or single and casual, but I'm gonna I like Lucrezia enough to use her in some tickets because I think she could sit right behind. And if we're just looking at, you know, she's she's not quite as high on the on the some of the figs as you know gaming or casual, but you look at the couple, the last couple of races that she's come out of. She was second behind Swiss Skydiver after she won the Sun Coast and, and won pretty nicely. She doesn't need yeah. the lead, but she doesn't need to be far out of it. And, and this was before I, I remember handicapping the Gulfstream Park Oaks and thinking that Lucrezia was going to be on the front end that day because there didn't look like there was like a, there were a ton of speed. You had tonalist shape in there, and you had a couple others, but there was no like need the lead speed. She broke on top. And then they asked Swiss Skydiver It was a really good ride on Swiss Skydiver They just put her on the lead and they slowed her down And this was before we really thought We kind of thought it was fluky Oh, Swiss Skydiver just goes 49, you know, and she's able to win Now we've seen that she is Right on top in one of the better three-year-old Phillies right now, if not maybe the most proven And best one out there, so I think Luc- I would prefer Lu- using Lucrezia Than Gamin, yep. just based on the price And I'm, I'm with you on preferring Casual of the two of them, a lot of that I think Has to do with the draw if casual is down on the inside, I'd be a little more concerned. I love the fact that that she's to the outside with the versatility she's shown. She should just sit really nicely, you know, in here and maybe sit right behind the two horses, you know, down on the inside. I completely agree on Lucrezia. I think she's the filly that gets overlooked here. Um, I think she could be every bit of that nine to two morning line. Uh, I, I mean, I have a lot of respect for a lightly raced filly that is one sprinting on turf, sprinting on dirt. And going long on dirt. She's obviously versatile. She can run on anything. She's got speed. Uh, you know, and this is the kind of filly that gets overlooked in a spot like this. That that probably maybe she's good- eight to one. You could. I wouldn't be shocked if the other two get hammered and she floats up a little bit and she's closer to even eight ten to one. If she's eight to one, I'm making a big win bet on her. That, that would be great. And yeah, I mean, she maybe. Yeah, maybe people see Swiss Skydiver and she does get bit, but I don't know. I got the feeling with the other two are just more like reputation type horses. We've seen them do big things and they're in big barns, and they'll probably take just a little bit more money. Um, as we move to race number nine, the Jiper, six furlongs on the inner turf course. The, I mean, I, I like this race a lot, handicapping, because I, I don't think you have to play Pure Sensation, who was your Breeders' Cup turf sprint favorite, who has a ton of ability. He loves to win races. He's coming up on two million in earnings. And, Generally, in a spot like this, he's he's very good. I'm a li- I'm I'm a little concerned that he may not be quite as good at six as he is at five or five and a half. I think that might be ne- be pushing his limitations a little bit. He's run some big races at six, but sometimes you get a little bit older and it's a little easier to go a little shorter. And um, I'm I'm fine with going in a few different directions. I think I start with Steubens, who to me is just really turned into a very nice turf sprinter. Um, if you just key off all of his sprints on the turf. He's done so little wrong And I remember early on He was a very highly regarded horse In the uh, O'Neill barn And he hooked a couple really good horses In his first few starts And then that was when they, they changed the plan a little bit And he became 
more of a turf horse And he's I mean he just shows up each and every time with a really good effort I, I like him a lot in here I think I'm going to kind of build you know a lot of exotics around him But the question is Darren What are we going to do with the most polarizing horse in all of horse racing, Hidden Scroll. It's the Roman Reigns of horse racing. <laughs> it really uh, is the Tim it, Tebow. It, <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually think that Hidden Scroll is the key to this race, and not from the standpoint that I'm looking at him as a win candidate. If he doesn't break, I think you have a really hard time catching Pure Sensation because I don't see anybody else who's within three yeah. lengths of him. And I'm, and that's kind of, I'm. You're right. He's he's very key in that because I'm assuming and hoping that the plan with him is just, hey, let's not get cute. We've gotten cute with this horse a bunch of times before. Maybe just going short on the grass is what this horse wants to do. So I'm I'm hoping and assuming, and I'll even float him in on one or two tickets, just thinking that maybe they just say let's send this horse as hard as he can go, and if he can't go six on the grass, going hard. Then this horse really doesn't have the kind of ability that we ever thought he did. So I'm I'm just assuming that has to be the plan. I can't envision wanting to take him back off. He just doesn't really pass horses. He's loomed up even in that count fleet. He looked like he was the winner in that race, man. He loomed up and then just flattened out. Yeah. If they don't send him in this spot, I think they're basically conceding the race to pure mm-hmm. sensation. Um look, I, I'm gonna bank on the fact that he breaks. I'm gonna bank on the fact that he pushes pure sensation a little bit. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably use Texas Wedge quite a bit. Sure. Um, second race back off the layoff of Peter Miller. You know that last race might have needed it. You know was off for about four months. Two starts back in the world of trouble stakes. Very nice looking win going five. A win going five and a half. Uh, has enough tactical speed where he can lay close. You know very seldom runs a bad race. In fact. You know, the only race that I see that's bad going short was the Turf Monster, which was on a yielding parks turf course, which can be a quirky turf course, to say the least. His other race that was subpar is the Oceanside, uh, which was at a mile. I don't see any reason why, why this guy can't be in contention. Portland Morning Line is, is a square enough price for me. So let's just hope that Pure Sensation gets pushed by Hidden Scroll and Texas Wedge. I think could be sitting third and fourth right behind the speed and work out a really good trip. Yep, Texas Wedge will be on um, almost all of my exotics I do think um, Oleksandra is a little interesting I think that she's got some ability here too uh, There's a horse who I, I've always been a fan of, Kanthaka I was actually a real big fan of him when they turned him back to sprinting I just think, keep an eye on him down the road From the rail, off this kind of a bench as a first-time gelding he, He's got ability, but I just don't know if he's going to be good enough to beat a group like this With, with nothing under his belt since uh, you know May of 2019 But Oleksandra, Texas Wedge Stubins and then Hidden Scroll would, would be the horses for me Hoping that like we said Hidden Scroll and Pure Sensation push each other And then giving Hidden Scroll a chance To maybe run them off their feet But it's just a horse that we can't really trust anymore And he's hard to key in on And he just he's quirky He seems to be his own worst enemy But anytime he's running it's fun because you know There's going to be great conversation on Twitter And it feels like anytime he runs like something crazy Happens in the race so <laughs> ex- right. Expect something bizarre to happen in the ninth race in the Jiper on uh, on Saturday, and maybe the bizarre thing is is that Hidden Scroll wins, and that would be kind of bizarre if he kind of settled down and just became like a a really nice horse after all is said and done. So we get to the Belmont race number ten, and uh, the new Belmont this year, a mile and an eighth. 
We know it's not the final leg of the Triple Crown Going a mile and a half anymore It is now the first leg of this year's Triple Crown The first jewel of, of this year's Triple Crown And Darren, the race the Really changed drastically in the last few days It seemed like we were only going to get eight horses in there And we found out recently that four left is now entered Reason why this changes the complexion of the race Is because on paper Looking at the horses who were the original Eight entries in this race Tap it to win would have been A major major pace player And would have looked to have a real speed Advantage with a horse like four left In here now those two could Do each other a little bit of harm They can Yeah just for sure and uh, You know four left is, is An interesting horse here for Doug O'Neill Just from the standpoint that you know, uh, he's going to have a lot to say in the outcome of the race because what he does tactically is going to really make a difference. Um, yeah, I agree with you on what, I mean, look, there's no question about it what Tappet to Win is going to do from here. He's going to blast out of there and try to take the field wire to wire. Um, I'm not entirely sold that. I Look, I I respect the hell out of Mark Cassian, and I know that when he gets a horse good, they usually stay good. I'm just not entirely sold that within two weeks, this horse is going to put up back-to-back numbers like that, you know, pretty much off the leap. Uh, I think there has to be a a slight regression coming at some point. And if you regress in a race like this, uh, it won't be enough to win. It just doesn't feel like it would be enough to win. Yeah. Yeah. So that, look, that's my view on him. Um, Tizalaw is very tough to beat. I I recognize his only defeat, you know, was actually a, a very good race, even in defeat. Um, he's come back even faster as a three-year-old. Here's the thing, and this is you know this is how you evaluate value. You take a look. He's got one figure that jumps out at a hundred. His next best figure is a ninety-six. It's not like that stands out. That's exactly how I feel. It's it's, it's almost yeah. like decorated invader too. It's like we're gonna get a horse who's gonna be a heavy favorite, but they they don't have those jump off the page. We dominate you speed figures. Like yeah. everybody else, like you normally get with a heavy favorite, the next tier of horses, like the the Tabitha Win, who ran faster last time than Tids the Law did, based on your buyer, Sol Volante, who ran basically the same. You have Pneumatic, who ran very similar and is improving. You have Doctor Post, who two back breaking his maiden ran a figure right in line with what Tids the Law has been running. So that next tier, and it's not just one horse that has figures similar. There's three or four other horses that are right in range with what he's been running. Yeah, and and you mentioned the horses that I that I'm really going to focus on, and it's the two outside horses. Sure. Um, so uh, the way I look, the way I think this sets up on paper. I think Tapatwin goes to the lead. I think four left is sitting right there second. I think that uh, Tis the Law sits third off them. And your next flight is Dr. Post and Pneumatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Tis the Law probably circles up on the outside, takes the lead, you know, heading for home. And I'm just hoping that Dr. Post and Pneumatic, one of them, come with a big enough effort uh, that they can win. Dr. Post has never been more than even money in his three-race career. He's going to be 9-2, to 5-1, to 6-1. to one. I think that's value. I think that does not necessarily reflect his chances to win the race. I think his chances to win the race are greater than that. So I'm going to go looking for value, especially when it comes to the multi-race exotics. And really, this race will come down uh, where I will probably just need either Dr. Post or Pneumatic to win the race. I'm very similar with you. I'm going to throw in Sol Volante on some tickets, too, just just in case. But I, I'm I'm 2-9-10, and I'm 10 in, in a lot of spots. I really like Pneumatic. 
Um, you know, he's progressing very nicely, and I think people were really high on him going into the Matt win. And it, it, like after the race, hearing nothing about him, it felt like people were maybe disappointed on by his effort. And watching it again, I was even more impressed by it. He progressed. He was facing two horses that are more experienced than him, that have had a lot more race, that are just better. You know, Maxfield and and New York Traffic. They're graded stakes, legitimate top three year old. This was his first start stepping into a graded stakes type effort, and he drew the rail. So he ends up getting caught up in the pace. I think a little bit more than he wanted to from the inside, and then he's mm-hmm. kind of stuck inside. But he's never like a full length even off of it. He's always kind of. Pressing from the inside which isn't the Easiest place to be he gets shuffled a little Bit early but then he's right back in there Just kind of sticking his nose in it all the way And it looked like When when like New York traffic and Maxfield Swoop up and it almost felt like They want they end up winning this race by five Lengths and not a length and a half Right you know he yeah. does Really battle on well and he tries Hard and I like a horse like this who's Had progression he's gone six furlongs To a mile to a mile and a sixteenth Now he has every right to take a step forward going In a mile and an eighth I'm kind of with you Darren To me I think from a gambling Standpoint this I Completely respect tis the law He is by far the most accomplished He has the best credentials And but I think because Of that is a is a good reason to bet against him. He's really the only horse in this crop, this three year old group, who was good at two and has stayed good his entire time through. These horses who were good at two last year and who won some of the early races and then the Breeders' Cup, they have not progressed at all to three. And then some of the good horses now they weren't around last year. He's like the only one, and people so many people know this name. Tis the law. Charlatan's hurt now. Nadal's hurt. He's kind of risen to the top. I think you're just going to get a way undervalued horse. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think you're getting, I think you're going to get bang for your buck. I think his price is not going to represent his chances to win either. Um, look, if Tisdall wins the race, would I be surprised? Of course not. Not at all. Nope. But look, when you handicap races, you have to measure what a horse's price is, his chances to win the race, and comparing him to the other horses. Tisdall at this point is just not that much faster. Than the next, the next rung of, of contenders, the next rung of players in the race, and when that situation presents itself, you can't take four to five even money on that horse and allow one of the other horses to slip away at seven eight to one. It's just that's just bad business when it comes to handicapping races, and that's the approach I'm going to take in the Belmont Stakes. Darren Zocali, uh, we went through races one through ten for the folks out there. It's a uh... You know, it's like I said, it's a Saturday that we wish we could maybe have a few bigger fields here and there, but there's plenty of races to take stands against favorites. It looks like there's at least a few horses that are going to take a ton of money that we can, you know, th- look at as vulnerable favorites, take swings against, single against, not use them in our exotics. And um, to me, I still had a lot of fun handicapping this card. There are still a lot of good horses running. It's just with the new ske- with the schedule and racing and all these tracks opening back up, I think. We've seen the stakes horses spread around And I also think what ended up happening Horses that you know, Think about a month ago How deep were those allowance races You know, At Churchill and, um, and at Oaklawn Even right before that We had a lot of horses who didn't know what the hell the schedule was going to be like I think they just ran Some of these horses ran in spots Because th- there was a race to run in And they might not be ready to run here Or maybe now they don't fit this schedule They're running the bluegrass or a stakes in the next few weeks So there were some unforeseen circumstances This year that threw everything out of whack Um, I can kind of understand why uh, Why there aren't a ton of horses Right now running 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to take into consideration that there's a lot of races left. And look, travel I mean, there's stuff whole- too, shipping yeah. stuff too, the virus stuff too, like horses that were maybe taken out of training, like you said, to point for the Derby or races down yeah. the line, Breeders' Cup. Yep. I mean, the Haskell's coming up in, in a month. Um, I don't know what the story is going to be on the Traverse Stakes. You know, we haven't really gotten much, uh, you know, on that because right now it's scheduled just, uh, you know, a week, uh, two weeks before the, or actually a week, I think, before the uh, before the Kentucky Derby or two weeks before the Derby, one or the other. So obviously something's got to give there. Uh, the Bluegrass is coming up in July. So we have, there's a lot of races left. And look, I know there's a lot of stuff on, on Twitter. You know, certain individuals were upset that, uh, that you know, horses like Maxia, they'll end up getting hurt anyway. We're not running in the Belmont. Look, th- this is a year that, God willing, we're never going to see again. Oh, yep. And nobody could have been prepared for this. Uh, I, I will not criticize any trainer or any racetrack this year for making a decision that they feel, based on the circumstances, are in the best interest of their horse or the best interest of their racetrack. Yep, and right we'll now. complain. We'll complain about yeah. plenty of things all the time, from from rides yeah. to the decisions that the racetracks will make to this to that. But I agree, there are some things that feel like it's just piling on to pile on. Like I'm glad we have the opportunity to sit back and watch this Saturday because a month ago we were just complaining that there was no racing, you know, and yep. and now oh, okay, the racing isn't as good as we wanted. Well. That's unfortunate because now a ton of racetracks have opened and they've all spread out. Like we used, we knew that a year ago there was kind of a horse shortage p- problem that that wasn't going to go away, you know. Um, right. So, I, yeah, I'm with you. We we'll com- we'll find plenty of things to complain about. I just I don't have a lot to complain about this week, and I'm I'm glad we have some good races uh, over at Belmont to uh to take a look at and and we'll, we'll find a way to bet them and and uh, to at least uh, to get some action. I can promise you that. So DZ, my man. Thank you very much. The the folks here listening, they're going to hear your voice coming up uh, not too long after this again for uh, almost three hours as we discuss the Montreal screw job. We just did that earlier with Andrew. That was a lot of fun discussion. And if you're a wrestling fan out there, make sure to stay tuned because you'll enjoy kicking back, having a beer, and maybe throwing the uh, the screw job on and listening along with us. Yeah, that was that was a great time, man. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the craziest things that ever happened in wrestling. And uh, I, I thought it was going to be a lot of fun to talk about, and it did not uh, disappoint. I'm actually looking forward to doing that myself. I'm going to crack open a beer and listen back to it just to just to hear about, like how how it came across and how we sounded in terms of all the different opinions we have. But yeah, uh, this is a fun week. I appreciate you having me on, Gino. I'm really looking forward to Belmont. Uh, if you're a harness fan, the Meadowlands this weekend has 36 races. They, they carded 18 races. And Saturday night because they're just Trying to do the right thing by Horsemen and getting these horses Raced so uh, there is No shortage of action And excitement now if only baseball Could you know get off their ass and get a Get a get a season started for us. I know it seemed like it seemed well, like we'll what we can get, Gino. Exactly we'll go Little by little and hopefully the next time we have a Conversation we will be able to, to, to say Thank you baseball will be coming back soon but uh, DZ my man thank you so much This was a ton of fun good luck this weekend Over at Belmont Park and I look forward to Talking with you next week when we uh, recap that uh, Royal Rumble 98 Yeah man looking forward to it thanks so much for having me on Man best of luck this weekend that's Darren Zocali there. Folks, don't go anywhere. Like we said, there's still a lot left on That's What G Said. We're just going to take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors. So I know you're a horse racing fan because you're in the middle of listening to the Wednesday and, and Thursday handicapping stuff. So stop right now. Go to oldsmokeclothing.com. Old Smoke 
clothing.com. Check this website out. If you're a horse racing fan, this is the way you can show the horse racing fan in you. We're talking t-shirts with horse names, polos, hoodies, long sleeves, zip-ups, hats. They have, you know, the biggest races, slogans, logos, uh, and, and then more importantly, there's a deal right now on the Old Smoke Clubhouse for an annual fee of $500. This is Thoroughbred Racing's exclusive membership for the sport's most passionate fans. You get quarterly packages delivered to your doorstep, filled with apparel, items, experiences that encompass the lifestyle of the sport of kings. So you get four deliveries. You get the Eclipse, which ships the first week of January, the Derby, which ships the first week of April, the Spa, which ships the first week of July, and the Royal, which ships the first week of October. Each quarterly package will include... T-shirt only available to members, custom horse racing themed gift, and various package fillers. Annually, you get one Old Smoke Clubhouse headwear piece made exclusively for members. You get one Old Smoke Clubhouse designer outerwear piece made exclusively for members. And the membership perks of the Old Smoke Clubhouse. 20% off all orders at OldSmokeClothing.com. Access to the Old Smoke Clubhouse online forum. Video feature appearance on America's Best Racing.net, quarterly betting contest, cashback referral program, additional perks added quarterly. For more information, email clubhouse at oldsmokeclothing.com. Check out the website oldsmokeclothing.com, and we've got a deal for you. When you use that promo code GINO, you get free shipping, no shipping costs there when you use that promo code G-I-N-O, oldsmokeclothing.com, promo code GINO when you go to checkout. And speaking of checkout, make sure to give a look to that clubhouse that offer 500 bucks annual fee and you get packages delivered to you all throughout the year. Oldsmokeclothing.com, promo code G-I-N-O for free shipping. Big thank you to Darren Zocali, and that's a voice you're going to hear again in just a moment because it's time for the old wrestling rewatch. We go to Survivor Series 1997. It is the Montreal screw job. I don't really have to set it too much because we're going to go through everything. We we break this uh, pay-per-view down from every single angle. Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali, it's Survivor Series 1997, one of the most infamous wrestling events in history. Enjoy. Our old wrestling rewatch has taken us back to one of the most controversial events, really matches, in the history of professional wrestling. Not just WWF, WWE. We're talking, you know, you you talk about some of the major incidents, controversies in wrestling, and this is one that everybody knows. You just say Montreal Screwjob. Everybody knows what we're talking about, and I welcome in. Like we do each and every week, Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali to talk about 1997 Survivor Series with me, guys. Uh, and I'll get it. I'll get to Andrew uh, first on this because I can. T- I know that Andrew's got a little bit of feelings. He's, he's been uh, talking to me as he's watched this show the last week. It's a it's a show that actually has a a bunch of pretty big moments and and things happening. Obviously, the big thing in the screw job. But when you look back at it. It's not a great show from top to bottom match quality, which was interesting because the roster was pretty good around this time. It got a little bit better in about a year when some of these guys developed. But just from a 
watching the matches match to match to match, Andrew, it wasn't necessarily a you know knock them out of the park. We're getting five star classics all the way through. Before anyone jumps to any conclusions, I am going to use the words that I used to Gino right before he started rolling tape on this. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Uh, This is a pay-per-view that I remember watching live as it happened with my father back in 1997 because we had no idea how the main event was going to go. There were strong rumblings of Brett going to WCW. We all knew what was going on with Brett and Sean. It got to where you weren't sure what was storyline and what was real, which we'll talk about as one of the main factors for why everything came together as well as it did and why we're still talking about it 23 years later. Having said that, going through the undercard, I haven't done this in any of our pay-per-view watches. It took me three or four different watches to get through all of the stuff on the undercard because while there were some decent moments and while there were some uh, wrestlers who really brought it, Vader in particular, yeah. we'll get to yeah. in a bit. Gino, a lot of these matches were terrible. Mm-hmm. Especially the first two, which means it feels, Darren, when you get two matches that kind of drag, like we've been pretty lucky throughout most of our rewatches that we, we generally get a pretty good opener. In almost, I think, in most of the shows that we, we've rewatched, that that wasn't the case here. As I mentioned, we can see what the WWF at this time is trying to do in each of these matches. Right, they're getting over the New Age Outlaws. They're they're trying to get over the uh, Truth Commission and 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 you know Kurgan, the interrogator at the time. They get Team Canada, you know, over in a big win for the Bulldog. They're Austin's coming back. They're getting Kane over. They're getting um, Shamrock and Rocky Maivia at the time. Oh, so we see what they're doing. It's just the first, you know, f- thirty-five minutes, forty minutes are bad with those two matches, and a, and a lot of the execution is just eh. Yeah, it's. Uh... The first couple of matches, I, I I didn't even really remember to be honest with you. No, and, uh, you know, watching them, it was just like, wow, this is uh, this is bad, you know, because because you think of this pay per view, and obviously it's you know one of the most famous pay per views in wrestling history, and uh, and you you get to the first couple of matches, and 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 it's like, wow, this is uh, when when does this start to pick up, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then it does the the, the two. The the two middle the 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 second and th- or the third and the fourth uh, the nation of domination um you know versus uh Shamrock and Ahmed like that that's a fine match and then the USA Canada match as Andrew mentioned Vader really pulls his way and the bulldog looks like bulldog he's really pumped and he's really amped by the crowd um but you know then we kind of forget about how the Austin you know Austin's obviously really nervous in his first match back, and they're they're playing it very safe with him. We did we none of us assumed that he'd have been back in the ring this quick at all. You know, coming off of what had happened at SummerSlam when he broke his neck, and so it just you know the cane the cane Foley takes a ton of crazy bumps, but that match is pretty slow and plotting. Kane, it's his debut, so he's still figuring the character out. So like I said, it's it's memorable for a lot of different reasons, and they do a good job with. Think about it. If they're tr- they're this is the very beginning of building up the New Age Outlaws. They're trying to do it with Interrogator, and he's really the only one of like five that misses. The other four all hit. I mean, the Outlaws end up being great. Shamrock has a really nice run. Obviously, they're building up my via the five. The last five minutes of that match is is decent when they're kind of having a little mini match there. Um, we know what Stone Cold does for the next two years, the biggest star in the history of wrestling. And and then Kane, you know, has a great run. But it's just 
We know that all of these guys can do so much better. I think that's why the word Andrew used disappointing feels pretty accurate. Yeah, I, I would say I would say that that's accurate. Um, you know, it, it does pick up a little bit in the middle, although there's mm-hmm. some spots and some matches that leave you, you know, scratching your head a bit and uh, some stuff about Team Canada that I'm sure we're going to have to, you know, have some fun with as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, the whole time I'm watching it, you know, I'm just kind of getting myself in the mindset of getting to the last race, the last, uh, the last match and really trying to, like, just pick up little things here and there in the commentary and seeing if anybody's given any clues about anything uh, just because of what we know is coming. Um, but, yeah, I mean, looking back on it, I, I, it, I guess the way I could say it best is that, you know, in watching this pay-per-view live when I was 14, the Brett – Sean stuff probably just was so huge that I literally just forgot what the rest of the pay-per-view was. I almost feel the same way. I don't really remember a lot of this happening um leading up to that match. And and so before we get into any specifics or and we start going match by match, let's do kind of like a go around the world and just kind of give each some of the uh, the setup that thoughts stuff we've heard about the Montreal screw job. So, I mean, this is obviously the Sean Brett match. We've talked about these two guys who have been really the focal point of of this company since the, I mean, honestly, it kicked off in 92. There were a ton of matches they had in that for the IC title and then when Brett won the title, we just discussed that Survivor Series 92 really good match they had in the main event. And we see a lot of the video packages that build up everything. They kind of use 96, the Iron Man match, as a starting point. But these two guys had been going at it for years before that. 92 and the Survivor Series in there. And 93, Sean filled in in the, in the Survivor Series there again. They were, we were kind of rivals as tag teams, then as the Intercontinental level, then all the way up into the main event level. Brett kind of got there a little before Sean did. And... I mean, th- these two guys had been such a big part, and they were friends. And then, and then it turned to bitter, bitter rivals, guys that hated each other. They, you know, the the rumors of Sean faking injuries multiple times when he lost his smile just so he wouldn't have to lose matches to Brett. Uh, Jr. mentions this was a match that was at least like eighteen months in the making since uh, since that Iron Man match at WrestleMania. And then, obviously, all the what what, what is supposed to happen. What's supposed to happen in this match, right? And we, I, I've heard and read, and we've all read and listened to many different takes on this. And the the word is is that going into this, Brett does not know he's supposed to lose this match. Um, he thinks it's going to be a disqualification, um, some sort of a schmoz. He thinks that the next night he's going to come out and relinquish the title. He had said many times, "I don't mind losing. I don't mind losing to anyone, but I will not lose to Sean in in Montreal, in Canada." And a lot of it had to do with a, a simple conversation, um, uh, Andrew, that these two guys had. And it's funny because it doesn't matter at any level of like um, of, of industry, of sport, or whatever. A lot of things come down to ego. And Brett went to Sean knowing that he was about to leave for WCW. Vince said he couldn't you know, afford to pay Brett his contract anymore. Brett's getting ready to leave. And he says to Sean, you know, I, I'll put you over kind of a thing. I, you know, I'll, I'll put you over. And Sean says back to him. I'll never put you over And that was the thing that kind of really Really set it in Brett's mind That I'm not doing this He said he'd lose to uh, You know Shamrock or Austin Or anyone But just not Sean in Canada And I mean those are just a few of the things Some of the other things Andrew Kind of set the scene Some of the stories you've heard Some of the things that you know Like give us your little uh, take on the screw job Before we get into this uh, this event specifically 
Before I do that, Gino, I'm going to make a prediction. We've been toying with this in several recaps that we've done. I think this might be the show where we spend more time talking about the show than the show last. We very well could. Finish on the network. I yeah. think this might be the week that we wind up eclipsing that barrier. It's a two and a half hour show. I think we might hit that here, especially given some of the things that Darren has hinted at with me in some of our conversations and some of our pre-show meetings that I'm very interested to hear more about. But this is one of those things that you remember certain things as a kid. And then looking back, you see about a hundred different layers as an adult, when you know the business, when you see everything that went into this match, the advent of archival footage, guys looking back, Brett and Sean did a rivalries DVD for WWE and Brett remembers absolutely everything. This is one of those things about Brett. He wrote his book that was 9,000 pages based on recordings that he would do every single day from when he was on the road. There were a lot of details. There's a lot about the deterioration of their friendship and their relationship as a whole. And Sean, by his admission, doesn't remember a whole lot because he was pilled out of his mind. And we'll talk a little bit more about this as we get up to the main event, because even just watching in the main event, you can tell something's not right with this guy. You can tell that he's pretty far gone. And in less than six months, he would be done for three and a half, four and a half years. I forget the exact math, but he'd be done for a really long time. This is one of those things where everyone remembers things slightly differently. You get certain pieces from Brett. You get certain pieces from Triple H. You get certain pieces from the participants in the Dark Side of the Ring documentary. And it's one of those things where... It's tough to believe that everybody is telling the truth because this is a business that's predicated on tall tales and not really knowing the full story. I mean, you listen to Hulk Hogan talk about how he body slammed Andre the Giant. Andre has gone from 500 pounds to about 800 pounds in the span of 30 years. That's just the nature of the business. And Darren, I know you've got some thoughts on this, and I'm going to get out of your way here because you've spent a lot of time researching and trying to connect the dots. And knowing what I know about some of our listeners, this is going to be the stuff they're going to want to hear. So, Darren, the floor is yours. Well, connecting the dots, you run into a problem here. And the reason why you run into a problem is because you have people saying things in one documentary or one interview. And then the same person saying something different about this in another documentary or another interview. And an example of that would be Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard said on one of the... Uh, the the, uh, the table for three shows that he did with JBL and Eric Bischoff that when he talked about the days leading up to the screw job that Brett wasn't going to do business and while they were hopeful that Vince would be able to talk him off the ledge they had to come up with a backup plan and it was pitched around you know well let's just you know, let's just do business for him. Let's just take the belt away from him. Let's just do this. Let's just do that. And Pritchard said, you know, they that at that point in time, Brett was kind of involved in working on some spots in the match, and Brett suggested having a spot where Sean tries to put him in the sharpshooter. And Bruce says, aha, 
That's how we can get out of it. You don't have to have a three count. Puts him in his own move. You call for the bell. We get the hell out of there. Now, that's all fine, except Bruce Pritchard does a million podcasts, including one that he also co-hosts called Something Else to Wrestle With. And in that show, obviously the screw job comes up. And Pritchard, at this point, which is now after the table for three, has no idea about the Montreal screw job before it happened. He was at Gorilla, flabbergasted by the events. It, you know, nobody ever talked about the specifics of the match. He had no clue that this was going on. And then on Wednesday, he had a meeting with Vince McMahon where he expressed his displeasure of not knowing anything. And Vince sat him down and explained why it had to be that way. So, I, I mean, I don't want to just use up this whole, you know, preamble on all of these inconsistencies. But that's Darren, just... Darren, I set you up so well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get him throughout the show. We'll get him throughout. But that's one example of a guy who is deep into the creative and the writing in WWE, who in two very public settings doesn't just say slightly, you know, slight variations of his recollection. It is two completely different stories of I was heavily involved in screwing Brett against I had no idea about this to the point where I had to talk to Vince three days after the show because I was so upset about it. Now, you can say that people remember different things and people pump their chest and stuff like that, but that is quite the the variance of going from one end of the spectrum to the other. And there is a whole lot more of that with a whole lot more people that have said much different things at different points in different interviews and different podcasts. So when you talk about trying to connect the dots in this you know, series of events, Gino, it's nearly impossible to do because what happens is the dots end up going all over the place and the twine just gets intertwined into a big mess. And that's why I'm going to take this as we go through the show to a point that maybe you can call a conspiracy theory. Maybe you can say it's a second government on the grassy knoll. But if you try to add up all these stories and come to the point that, well, you know, it was just a couple of guys knew about it and this is how they had to get the title off belt. Well, it's like telling me that one plus one equals yellow. It just doesn't make sense. There are even little things like, um, you know, okay, so some of the reason that this this went down. Vince um, w- w- offers Brett a contract. Brett leaves after WrestleMania 12 when he loses the title to Shawn Michaels. He goes away for about six months and he's deciding on if he if he's going to retire at this point or he's actually thinking about getting into TV and movies. He's doing like Lonesome Dove and some other things at the time, I think. And he decides to come back. He has comes back at the Survivor Series 96, a show we'll we'll eventually do one day. Has a really good match with Stone Cold. Um and he he accepts this deal. Um, for I think it's twenty million dollars, right? It's a, a deal for you know that that's going to set basically bred up for life and to the point where he's going to wrestle forever. And I think it's like a front loaded deal where he gets paid a lot a lot of it early, and then later he'll get like you know five hundred thousand a year as he transitions into like a producer or maybe even the next Vince. Like he he's he's setting and grooming bred up to be the guy forever. He this is a, a guy who's been a company guy forever. This isn't some random wrestler. We got to remember th- about this. That's what will make this a little bit different. This is the guy who's the locker room leader who has been with you since WrestleMania two. Who is one of the bigger families in the history of wrestling So this is not some Joe Schmo 
that you're trying to pull a screw job on. And and so we hear that Vince can't pay the 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 money to Brett. He can't he can't pay the contract that he promised him. And so he tells Brett, "Hey, you know, if you that you had a con- uh, an offer from WCW, maybe go go see if they want to do it." First of all, with everything going on at this point where where Vince is like Trying to not lose any of his lower mid card guys, he's trying to poach anyone that's at WCW. You think he would be just okay with letting his guy walk like this? That seems weird to me. And then there was apparently a few weeks later, or a couple, I guess a month or two later, where Vince came back and told Brett that he actually could make the the payments. Now there's just a lot, as you said, inconsistencies. We're gonna get through them on what has already been a, a long build up. For the show and it's going to be even longer Once we get anything to and around that main event um, The rest of the show Some big moments, some some things to talk about But a very Very important show In the history of professional wrestling And one that was definitely on the on the bucket list Of we have to do this show And as Andrew mentioned, it's not the greatest Quality, but it's just an important show to talk about And you know what, sometimes the shows that are, Aren't the best quality are the ones where you have The most to discuss <laughs> sometimes it's Either a hate watch or just like this one where there's Big things happening so let's Get right into it we have the Survivor Series 1997 We are in Montreal and, and you're going to notice All throughout the show that we're getting the ring Announcing uh, for the match in French And so that's what's interesting with A, a show like this too and, and everything they were Doing in 97 with this dynamic where You have all the wrestlers who are Canadian or on Team Canada or associated with Brad or the Hart Foundation, they're all the biggest faces, baby faces. They get cheered like the good guys. A lot of the others get booed. Anyone against them gets booed. Um, and it's just what an amazing dynamic they were able to have in '97 with this, where you could have, you know, wrestlers playing both sides, just to pay, uh, depending on where you were uh, around the world. So Survivor Series '97, this is Gang Rules, and I believe this was the this this was it for Vince on commentary, right? This is it. Like Vince is, yeah. is not on commentary here. And JR or King even makes a where's Vince McMahon at? Because at this point, we don't even really we're starting to kind of know, but we all don't one hundred percent know that Vince is is really the owner. We don't know he's the man in charge. We still don't a hundred percent know like it's been told he's had interactions, like Diesel would say stuff to him, Brett would say stuff to him when he was on commentary, and people would you know we started to get the feel that Vince was more important than just a guy on commentary, but it wasn't even like, yeah, Vince is in charge and makes all the calls here yet. So this was uh, definitely the end of Vince on commentary, and we know evil Mr. McMahon is born here. The opening package. It's all uh, the footage of Brett and Sean All about the Iron Man match I thought the one line that Sean said was actually Kind of funny um, He says I do this because I like it You do it because in your mind Mark man you really think all of this is yours Which is is part of why we like Both of those guys right We like Sean because he's kind of easy breezy And just you know having fun And we love Brett because he took it so seriously um, So that, I thought that was just kind of a cool line And then Brett calls Sean a degenerate And that's where the name Dege- Degeneration X was born and we actually see that there's going to be a DX pay-per-view the following month here. It's Jim Ross. It's the King, Jerry Lawler. And JR is pretty awesome throughout the night. He says, tonight it will finally be settled. Who is the man, Brett or Sean? And I thought, you know, knowing what we know, as Andrew said, and now in, in listening to this as adults versus as kids, I, you pick up on so many little things that people say or do throughout the show. And one thing that King says each of these guys refuse to lose 
which is crazy because yeah, they don't. They neither one of these guys were like, I'm not losing here. Um, and we get into this match, and as uh, as we both have mentioned, you know, we all have mentioned, you both have mentioned, this match is not much. It's the Headbangers, it's the New Blackjacks um, versus the Godwins and the New Age Outlaws. And the problem in a match like this too is there's really like the Headbangers are like quasi baby faces. The New Blackjacks are newly turned. There's really no baby faces. The crowd's pretty dead. Except for anything involving the New Age Outlaws And we can tell these guys Who were kind of plucked From obscurity to kind of place together the, Neither of these guys had much going on You put them together and it's like eh, I mean, and they end up being one of the best tag teams Ever, they're not always Great matches, but they're fun um, They they did a great job And this was the start of them But overall, this is not a, a very good match We'll get to you first, Andrew Not a good match is an understatement I thought this was god-awful, and I'm going to go into several of the reasons why. But first, just touching a little bit on some of the pre-match stuff that went on, the opening video recapped everything that had been going on since WrestleMania 12. And as I mentioned right at the top of this show, it's really tough to determine what was a storyline and what was real because so much of that stuff just happened to match up. So that actually I thought was really well done. As a TV person, I had to point this out. The TV production crew did not have a great evening on this night because when they show Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler, for an instant, the graphic pops up, the Jim Ross, Jerry Lawler thing where they introduce themselves, and it's backwards. Jim Ross's name is under Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler's name is under Jim Ross. And it's one of those things where if you blink, you'll miss it because someone said something right away. And I just envisioned Vince in the back going, damn it, the graphic is backwards. Sorry, I had to get and, Vince. No, and then, then you, just a point on your, on this before, too. There was another point throughout the night where there was just like a weird sound. Yeah. Just like, Meh! and then they, uh, the king was like, oh, what's Kevin Dunn doing back there? Yeah, <laughs> Kevin Dunn actually got a shout out. Yeah. And JR I, said, I think that was Kane. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, it's just one of those things that blink and you'll miss it. But given my background, I, I noticed this match somehow got 15 minutes. And for the life of me, I don't know why. Let's look at the participants involved here. You have the New Age Outlaws. Great. They're heels in the making. Fine. They wind up winning this match. Great. You're getting done what you need to get done, and that's fine. But just looking at some of the other people in this match, the headbangers, we've talked about it. These guys were sort of forced into a position where they were transitional tag team champs for a little while. And that just didn't make any sense because I don't know who they were supposed to market to, but it didn't work. Nobody cared about anything that they wound up doing. The new blackjacks had just turned face here. Barry Windham is unrecognizable. He (laughs) is old. He is fat. He is slow. And if you didn't tell me that it was Barry Windham, I never would have been able to tell you who it was. It was just such a far cry from where he was when he was so, so good in the late 80s and early 90s, his runs with the Four Horsemen, his runs elsewhere. When he was on top of his game, he was a natural. And just seeing that, it's a reminder of the the toll that time can take. The New Age Outlaws are the only ones in this match that are getting any sort of heat. And for the first 10 minutes, they do nothing. This match dies on the vine really quick. And the rest of the guys are trying. They really are. The problem is they're slow, they're plotting, 
and nobody gives a rat's ass about what's going on because it just seems like the outcome's a foregone conclusion with the outlaws emerging victorious since they're the only ones with any momentum in here. I don't know why you needed 15 minutes for this match and the finish was terrible. Billy Gunn goes to the top rope and immediately you know it's not going to end well because the target of his flying leg drop is three quarters of the way across the ring. Billy Gunn's a heck of an athlete. He's not going three quarters of the way across the ring. He's not the even top close rope. to hitting this he leg misses, drop. He misses by several feet. And the guy on the ground has to sell it. They wind up getting the pin. Again, 15 freaking minutes. This was a chore to watch, and it just started everything off on the wrong foot for me. Yeah, I'm, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that. I mean, Andrew pretty much, you know, surmised this pretty well. Um, going back to the beginning of the match when they were announcing, going through the announcing crews, there were a couple of really funny signs. Um, there was a Domino's Pizza Suck sign. For there, some oh, I'm glad you pointed out the signs. I mean, oh, yeah. my God, like all throughout the night, too, oh, as far as, like, slur, homophobic slurs, racial slurs, oh, just, just uh, shows you the difference of time from then yeah. to now. Like, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, you know, a, a Owen break his neck. There's even there's a sign for Zeus behind <laughs> you. Like, where did that come from? Uh, and there's another guy over the Spanish announce table where it says Sonny, thanks for last night. Which I I mean, there, there's some really funny signs. Um, yeah, I mean, I was the one thing that I was really gonna note a couple things. Really, really slow across the board. The headbangers who are supposed to be quote high-flying guys are painfully slow. Like, for, you know, for guys that are supposed to be they're whatever like they're like Tatanka. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you remember them as being faster and quicker and moving around the ring, and that just wasn't who they were in the ring. Yeah. Uh, the pairings are very odd in this match. Um, you know, it, you know, you got you got the Outlaws with, with the Godwins. It's just like two teams thrown together. Uh, and then the other big thing, you know, that Andrew touched on, the, the finish was one of the worst finishes I've ever seen where – I mean, you, you couldn't miss a guy by more than Billy missed the guy off the top rope and, and having to sell that. It was, I remember I was literally just sitting there watching it, and Amanda looked at me and, and she goes, she goes, that wasn't even close. <laughs> close. <laughs> it was so bad. It was bad. Yeah, it, was, it was really bad. Uh, I mean, look, I, I, you know, there's a lot of other fun things to talk about in this show. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but yeah, I mean, bad match. The crowd, which comes to life at different parts in the show and pops for different things, they they were not into this match at all, except for when the Outlaws did something. So on the way to the ring, I forgot about this one too. Then I'm going to be remember, folks. I'm quoting some of these things. This is not me saying some of these things. It just shows you how how times have changed in wrestling. So Road Dog's on the way to the ring. He's got the mic. He's amazing on the mic. He's one of the better talkers that I think people forget about how good he is on the mic. He comes out in freestyles all the time, or he was just so quick with their catchphrases and everything you would do. The crowd was crazy chanting. Once these guys got hot in about a year, year and a half, I mean, just chanting everything along with them. And he, so he comes out and he says, uh, hello, all you maple leaf loving freaks. You're about to find out the true meaning of Southern justice. I see that the steers and queers have already made their way to the ring. All you Yankee lovers are going to see what Southern justice is all about. So, I mean, just a boom, like right off the bat, we're getting, uh, oh, hey, we're not in 2020 anymore. This is 1997 where you, you like people really... Didn't, which is crazy. Didn't really look twice at you when you said something like that. Um, King says, if you could win matches with your mouth, 
that uh, Road Dog would be one of the champs around here. And uh, JR says that Phineas spent three years in the third grade. I mean, there's no wrestling, hits, kicks, big man offense. The outlaws, as, as Andrew mentioned, they don't want to tag in. They don't even tag in for the first 10 minutes. Henry gets eliminated by an abdominal stretch into a pin. That's the one thing. And I, I love Survivor Series events overall. I love the the tag matches. I love the elimination matches, especially because, you know, up until like the 2000 era, we didn't see a lot of these guys team up. So it was a novelty. It was fun. I liked thinking, wow, they got to pin four guys to win this match. These matches are going to be long. They're going to be great. And then we get so many finishes. Is it like, why, why only on Survivor Series do like clotheslines or like basic slams? Eliminate someone or pin someone When that same move would never Eliminate or pin someone in a one-on-one match It just, they have to get through Some of the finishes quick, I understand that Just give me a pile driver Give me your finish, give me something A a cheating maneuver, that's fine But just the real basic, you know, drops Or things like that, that, that's one of the things That stood out on this show in particular Um, We mentioned how much heat you get from The the outlaws when they check in uh, When they tag in Billy Gunn And Road Dog crowds hate them super loud boos. I think we even get a a, a, ch- a crowd chanting that Billy is a a like a homophobic slur at one point, yeah. um, which is like wow. I, I forgot all about that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's building up the the the, the, the new edge outlaws. They're the uh, the sole survivors in here. Billy Gunn and Road Dog at 15 minutes and 27 seconds. We talked about that awful finish there. So. Uh, yeah, bad match. It does start to get the job done with these guys. They're hated. They come off as Weasley guys. We want to see them get their ass kicked after this. It's just we spent 15 minutes getting there, and it, it, there wasn't a whole lot of great getting there. And then the next match, boom, it's pretty quick. There's not a lot of fluff in between. Um, we get a little like Billy celebrating outside and talking trash to the announcers and the fans, and then boom, here comes the Truth Commission. We hear their footsteps music. Um, and uh, it's Truth Commission versus the DOA. We just get a ton of big guys here. This match is is I think worse than the first match. Even there's just like less, like there's even less ring like wrestling going on or good work than we, which was hard to to believe after that first match. This is all about building up the interrogator. He's seven foot three, three eighty eight. They tried to get him over in a couple different spots, and he was one that just. He, you can see why it didn't work He's just so stiff in the ring He can't really go You have a guy like him debuting on this show And then a guy like Kane Who's you know maybe 2 or 3 inches shorter And maybe 50 pounds lighter 60 pounds lighter But he can talk about the difference in one guy moving Versus the other um, for two And then the Jackal who is the, like, the leader Of the Truth Commission That's Don Callis Don Callis who is good friends with Chris Jericho. He was the ring announce or the uh, co- on commentary for uh, New Japan, and now he is in charge. I think he runs TNA um, currently, and uh, he kind of set up the whole Jericho Kenny Omega stuff on, in New Japan. A, a good match if you want to go check that out. So we get him as a Jr. calls him the David Koresh like leader, which is a reference to believe to Waco and a, a cult leader who had been killed just a few years prior uh, prior to this. DOA actually gets a big pop. We're talking about uh you know crush um and we get the uh, the Harris brothers who end up showing up in WCW and TNA a few years later and it's just this is just not good Andrew the Jackal gets eliminated he joins on commentary quickly Bull, Bull Buchanan he's on the Truth Commission remember Bull Buchanan um 
This is like sidewalk slam, sidewalk slam, trying to build the uh, the interrogator. He picks up the the win, and then the jackal before he uh, leaves to go celebrate, he says, "I win Survivor Series," which <laughs> I thought was just kind of funny. And they were like, "Well, you, you don't really win," but he goes and celebrates. This one, uh, I think, altogether the the better part, the better thing about this match versus the the opening match, Andrew. This one didn't even get the ten minutes, so at least we didn't have to sit through quite as much. And that's precisely why I liked this match a little bit better than the opener. If you're going to suck, suck very quickly. For and shorter. That's precisely what this match did. Now, you had the Truth Commission, and it was apparent right away what the purpose of this match was because JR on commentary talking about Kurgan the interrogator says he is the most imposing force in many, many years. But they this they were not subtle. This match was to Give Kurgan as much shine as they possibly could. Truth Commission comes out. DOA comes out. They get a little bit of a pop for the motorcycles. But I never understood the point of riding out on the motorcycles if all you have to do is park them right back where the entranceway starts and then walk all the way down the aisle anyway. To me, that made absolutely <laughs> no a, sense. They didn't get to ride him as fast as the LOD did down in uh, SummerSlam 92 either. They had to really, like, walk, ride those things down to the ring. Now, to be fair, they probably were on less substances than Hawk was. So <laughs> That's true. So, call that a wash. So, here's what happens. Kurgan has one move. I will give him credit for this. He, I thought, had a really good sidewalk slam. Yeah. And that's one better move than some other Giants in the past have had. Giant Gonzalez had no moves. Kurgan had one move. Progress. <laughs> the Jackal gets murdered really early here <laughs> to a surprising pop. And that's a credit to Don Callis, who's a very good performer. He's a good talker, knows the basics of pro wrestling. He just was never going to be a wrestler because he was a fairly small dude. He wound up making the most out of what he had, and he's wound up being a very good promoter, a good talker, a good manager, more power to him. So he winds up going over to the commentary booth, and he tries like hell to get this match over. That's, uh, you know, it's a task where you're doomed to fail, but he tried his heart out on commentary to try to get his guys over, specifically Kurgan. The less said about the in-ring portion of this match, the better. JR has a couple of instances where he mixes up Sniper and Recon and mixes up the Harris brothers because in both instances, they look exactly alike. They're wearing the same thing. Nobody knows who is who. It's just a bad situation all the way around. The aim was to put Kurgan over. They did that, and thankfully they did that pretty quickly. Yeah, very quickly. Um, I mean, it was just kind of a goofy match. Um, yeah, I, I think mean, this was their only. Not to interrupt. I think other than Kurgan getting in the Rumble, I, and then yeah. them in the Rumble, I think this is like their only pay per view. We don't even see them. Like they're they're done by like early '98, uh, and justifiably so. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, look, I, yeah, he's got one move. It's a sidewalk slam. But but to be honest with you. I mean, I, I could sidewalk and slam a guy. I mean, you literally pick the guy up. He's, he's you know, parallel to the floor for two seconds, and then you just fall down. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's all the move is. Um, you know, somehow he puts away Crush with it. You know, Crush looks like he's in complete agony on the floor uh, as he's getting pinned. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of those gimmicks that just didn't work. 
because the guy who looked like he was the indestructible force um, just couldn't wrestle. And, you know, I mean, Vince gives big guys shots. We know this. He likes guys that look imposing. He likes guys that are big. And, you know, he's going to throw a lot, of them at, a lot of them at the wall. You know, some of them are going to stick. Uh, you know, he gave, uh, he gave Glenn Jacobs quite a few opportunities as, you know, Dr. Isaac Yankum and Fake Diesel, and they came up with the Kane thing and said, wow, you know, this guy can wrestle a little bit, and it stuck. You know, Kurgan, you know, interrogator, you know, just did not stick. Um, yeah, thankfully this was faster and, and not as painful as the first match. But, uh, yeah, this is, there's really not a whole lot else to say with what's going on here. Yeah, so uh, the interrogator ends up eliminating three um, three guys in here. He eliminates Chains, then Apol eliminates the Jackal real quick. Andrew mentioned he just gets – he's out of there. The point is for him to get over on the commentary to try to get this match over. Um, uh, let's see. Skull, a recon, eliminates Skull. Skull – Eliminate Sniper, so we're down to Crush and the Interrogator The Interrogator ends up winning And uh, he's the sole survivor, but Never really, I mean, of all the guys They're trying to get over on this show They have a damn good hit rate And he's the one that we can just say Really never makes it He's just kind of becomes a background guy in the oddities And um, he's just never really anything But everyone else in the show that they they try to build up Even though it's it's not a great show overall They get the job done In most situations, so um yeah, those first two matches, which, in my opinion, were, and I think everybody can agree, were, were definitely the, the low spots on the show. We are done and on from them, and uh, now we're we're getting the fans that are interviewed outside. This reminds me of you know SummerSlam '92. They were doing it with the Bulldog and with Brett. Who do you think's gonna win? Who do you like? And they they would ask both sides, and we got I think a few more people that were saying Brett, but there were plenty in in. You know Canada that were on Sean's side Or that sh- that thought Sean were going to win Which you know, I think was a little surprising And uh, and then right afterwards I th- And I think it is someone wearing a Rey Mysterio mask in there Is that a Mysterio mask or just like a, a general mask It looked to me like a Mysterio mask I thought one of the fans And then King says He if uh, he doesn't know if today is Halloween Have you seen the faces on these people here in Canada <laughs> Which I thought was a pretty good line So I mean this was just uh, Getting some of the fans here uh, To uh, to see Darren uh, This was quick but the king had a good line here I, I love and I'll mention it later I love the, the king and JR Dynamic right here it seems like they've Really found their chemistry and this is like they. I think they do a really good job all throughout The show Yeah they do Um you know, the quips that are in there, uh, they have a lot of material to work with. The crowd gets pretty hot. The whole Canada-U.S. theme. You know, Jerry's got some good spots as well. We touched upon them. I'm, you know, I know J.R. kind of hints at when they start the uh, the match between Brett and Sean. Says, like, the smart money is that you'll never see this again. Mm-hmm. With an interesting line. Um, you know, Lawler, Lawler had a good line where, I mean, we'll get into the stuff that goes on with Sean at the beginning of the mat, that match, but he says it's 20,500 and something against one. Um, and it really is. I mean, it's it's crazy what's going on in that crowd, and we'll touch upon it. But, yeah, you're right. They were both on point. Uh, I would say between the two of them working as a team, probably one of their better – one of their better uh, pay-per-views as a yep. collective. I agree with that. And one of the good things about Lawler here is he's obnoxious but not to the point where he's trying too hard. Completely agree. Lawler in a lot of instances. Early, yeah, there like, were yeah. Times, there were times 100%. he did the job, but 
but there were times where he was just trying way too hard and you can tell here it seems natural and he gets in a number of pretty good lines there was one segment uh where somebody won a dinner and instead of picking him picked steve austin and i thought that was pretty darn good heel work on lawler's part acting all disappointed that the girl wouldn't pick him to go to dinner with it was a pretty good night for him and it was a good night for jr it was one of those instances where the commentary added to the action rather than subtracted mm-hmm. from it. And this was one of those times where Lawler started to find his groove. It was in between the trying way too hard point and the sexual pervert point yep. where he would yell puppies. Every <laughs> puppies! So you're getting the sweet spot with Lawler here. The There's this all throughout the night, and I think you can feel it from the announcers, and I think that even helps like keep them on top of their game. There's this weird, nervous kind of like anxiety energy throughout the building, you know, because a lot of people don't know what's what the hell's gonna happen. Like they don't they don't know. You could tell that like the Team Canada guys too. Everyone kind of gets in and out of the ring pretty quickly for the most part in between matches. Vince is backstage now, where a lot of times he's been on commentary, so they're probably all a little nervous backstage. There's just like this weird overall energy that you don't really feel. In a lot of other shows and, and maybe it's it's me looking back And feeling it a little bit more But it kind of feels like tense You know, most of the night th- throughout in here We get to Kevin Kelly He's talking to Stone Cold Steve Austin backstage Who's going to be making his return to the ring tonight Stone Cold is, you know He's given us Stone Cold But he does mention he's a little bit nervous about his, uh, his neck He's just going to go out there and be Stone Cold Now the show really starts to pick up In this Team USA versus Team Canada match We get footage of Steve Blackman and you know what? This is something that, that WWE doesn't do enough nowadays. Okay, the storyline's a little silly, right? He's a fan. He comes in to save, you know, Vader, but um, he's a martial artist and this and that. But there's a couple little things that I actually like about it. They just mentioned the fact that Vader went and bailed this guy out of jail. He got taken to jail because, like any fan, if you jump the railing and get in the ring, you're going to get arrested. So the guy, so logically, the guy gets taken to jail. Vader goes and bails him out, and then Vader goes and talks to Sergeant Slaughter and says, "Hey, I want this guy on Team USA." It's like sometimes in wrestling, all you have to do is get the announcer to say two sentences, and we can go, "Oh, okay, that make that makes a little bit of sense." You know that that's that makes more sense than us trying to to figure out what happened and and you know put all the lines together. So I I thought that was just something that, that that stood out a little bit to me that we don't get as much in the storytelling nowadays. It just seems like they there's missing pieces a lot of the time. And then, then uh, we get the uh Team Canada backstage uh, or so first it's Team USA. So footage of Steve Blackman who gets the, the you know who helps save Vader from the beatdown. Vader bells Blackman out, then asks Slaughter if he can join Team USA. It's a Vader USA promo. And it's pretty much just Vader He's talking about Team USA He's a baby face here um, He said it's not just Vader time tonight It's America's time Quick words from Steve Blackman it, It's funny I don't know if this was he was doing this accidentally Or it was part of the character But Mark Marrow is like trying so hard To get his face in the camera Or like get right in the middle Or like almost looks like he wants to talk so badly And um, and then we get the uh, the Kurt Angle music And here comes Team USA Huge pop for Sable And Goldust has the F.U. on his face paint Which means Forever Unchained So we get this And then the other uh, the other backstage promo And then I'll let you guys uh, comment on that Before we get into the match um, So it's Team Canada backstage Bulldog's talking And then Doug Furness gets on the mic And he badmouths America Again, it's just simple, right? He says, I left America 
And and it's just okay. Now we get we, we get this is a guy who is an American and he doesn't like America. We can kind of understand that Nyhart his family's there, so he's more of a Canada guy. And Bulldog obviously in, in the family too, so it kind of makes sense. Even though all these guys, three of them aren't from Canada, it's just little things about at least giving me more to the story, which I like. And um, we get you know Jr. As I just mentioned, this this to me too, and I'm, this was the point that I kind of figured it out. This is the best that he's ever been, Jr. Too, and and you, Andrew, you hit it on on King because we get the background stuff like we used to with Jr. But not overkill. He's found his voice. It's not kind of like that young voice. He's really like grown into that Jr. Voice where we get all the sound bites. He's intense. He's got chemistry with King. He's quick witted. He's comfortable. He just feels like. He's the man here, and in my opinion, in this next window of like three or four years, he is is good as good as any wrestling play-by-play man ever in the history of wrestling. He's on his game here, and we get the huge pop for Team Canada. Jr. says what we're thinking. He uh, doesn't try to lie or BS us. Only one of Team Canada is actually from Canada, and it's just Lafon. So, uh, Andrew, what are your thoughts on those two like promos and the, the setup to this match? There were certain dynamics where the Canada anti-U.S. thing worked, and there were certain dynamics where it didn't. This felt really forced to me because you have Vader cutting an anti-Canada promo. In any other country, Vader and company would be the faces here. That didn't work for me also because Vader's not a face. Vader is the guy who looks like he's going to kill you. And most of the time during his career, he did. See also the fact that Mick Foley asks us to lend him an ear. See? See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well played. Team Canada cuts the heel promo. They're supposed to be faces. Hearing Bulldog talk about Team Canada in the thickest British accent you can imagine made me laugh. JR said what we were all thinking. Lawler jumps down his throat saying, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Boy, there are some people that are really taking that philosophy and running with it. I'll leave that right there. 2020. So this is Blackman's WWE debut, and he gets a lot of offense here. And he doesn't lose clean. He gets counted out. I thought this was a pretty good debut for him. Mm -hmm. And he wound up to a little bit of a career himself. It was only a three, four, five-year run because he was already sort of an older guy. But he was able to establish himself in the mid-card and was, at the very least, a reliable, consistent performer. The stuff he did with Al Snow as part of Head, head Cheese, cheese. pretty darn funny. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so that worked pretty well. Um, Bulldog gets a gigantic pop for suplexing Vader. Bulldog yep. being the big, strong guy. Vader being the big dude who doesn't usually leave his feet. That was pretty cool. I liked this match. Vader and Nightheart get a really good power sequence in for a couple of minutes. And Vader does his part to try to carry this match. Because while the Survivor Series match is usually four on four, in this case, it was more so four on two. Blackman gets eliminated early via countout. Goldust mm-hmm. does nothing. Literally if nothing. Ever, if there's ever an instance of a wrestler crying for help, this was it. Because Goldust was blown up physically. He looked like a big gold helium balloon. That's how large he was. Does nothing over the course of this match. Walks out on the team. It just looks like he is in absolutely no condition to perform. It wouldn't get much better for him at WrestleMania the next year when he teams with Luna against Mero and Sable. It just that, that was uncomfortable to watch. 
And it just makes me marvel at the fact that 23 years later, Dustin Rhodes is in as good physical condition as he's ever been. And I'm just happy he's still around. This was a good match. I enjoyed this match in contrast to the first two. Goldust ditches Vader. The crowd boos Goldust. And Lawler hits the nail right on the head saying, what are these idiots booing him for? They should be cheering. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But that goes to show how good a job Vader was doing in the ring. Vader turns back the clock a good six, eight years in this match. He looks like a killer, and it takes Bulldog bashing him with the ring bell to knock him down to where he winds up getting pinned. I thought this was the best match on the undercard by a pretty considerable distance. Uh, I loved the Mark Miro-Doug Furnace punch exchange. Yeah, that Miro was good. I'm glad you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Yep, Miro obviously a former amateur boxer who knew what he was doing. Doug Furnace quietly a very good worker, despite the fact that he didn't have the most charisma of anybody on the roster. He was just sort of there to be a hand, and he played that role pretty well here. It was a good match. I enjoyed this match, and it was a really pleasant surprise after the first two matches stunk up the joint. Yeah, I, the in-ring action I enjoyed. Um, you know, for a lot of the things that, that Andrew said, I, I, I made a note that I thought this is probably one of the best, you know, matches that Vader had in WWE. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it looked like, like you know, superhuman Vader that we knew from 1990, you know, 1991 in WCW, which was, which was really cool. Um, yeah, Steve Blackman looks like a, a jacked up Wolverine. He I does. Mean, it's a good, yeah. He does look oh, like a Hugh Jackman, right? Yeah. Like, like a jacked up Hugh Jackman. He's built like a brick shit house. I mean, it's, it's impressive. You know, his, his physique, um, they lay a hot for bulldog in this match, man. I mean, every time he tags in, you know, you get a pop, any kind of a big move. He, he looks like he's setting up, you know, to hit the running power slam at one point and the place comes unglued for it. Um, yeah, it's you know the the in ring action is good. I agree with Andrew that a lot of this felt forced. It, it, it kind of felt to me like, all right, well, we got the whole Brett thing going on behind the scenes, and he doesn't want to lose in Canada, and let's have a match of Canada versus the U.S. Well, okay, who are yeah, we gonna it, put on? You know, who are we gonna put on Team Canada? And then you put the team together, and it's like, all right, well. Three of these guys aren't from Canada, so we gotta have one guy cut a promo and say how much he hates the U.S. You know, well, Anvil, we can get by a little bit because he's in the Hard Foundation. Um, you know, let's but let's let's play Brett's music for them. That'll make it real Canadian. You know, yeah. Even though Bulldog's British, and you know, it, it's it's a year it's a year before Kurt Angle, you know, makes an appearance in WWE. But you know, they got Kurt Angle's music for Team USA, which is just kind of thrown together. You know. So a lot of that does feel forced. I get what they were trying to do. For me, the story was, you know, a four out of ten. The match was, uh, you know, six and a half out of ten. I thought it was, I thought it was, you know, above average to good. Uh, and, and I would agree, probably the best match on the undercard. If we just got, um, if this was, you know, Owen and Pillman obviously was her, and you know, like that Canadian Stampede match earlier in the year, which was a match, a show that we'll talk about one time, which the crowd is hot, and we got Brett on that, or if you know, if if Owen's not involved in the IC title and Owen's on the match, and, and there's nothing against Furnace and Lafon, I think they're both great workers, like they're super underrated as a tag team, but yeah, there was just they help the ring work out a little bit, and they help you know selling and bumping around for Vader. But they don't help the storyline So I guess you get a little and you give a little um, When it comes to that So uh, it, you hit it too Crowd is insane for Bulldog I mean, and he seems to really be 
be amped by that too that the crowd is so into him he's uh he seems like he's really on point like i just vader really stood out and then right behind that it was bulldog that seemed like he had a little bounce in his step um he actually hits you know that that suplex that you mentioned he hits like a a uh, like a randy orton turning like power slam um like a quick catch and turn with vader off the ropes which is a lot of vader in that too you know and that was a great spot um JR says Blackman is a trained martial artist, which I thought was funny because right as he said that he hits like a drop kick. So then JR's got to cover himself and he's like, but he's picked up some of that catches can style real quickly. <laughs> so um, the crowd multiple times chanting for Sable. Uh, Blackman gets counted out. Then it's that fun spot that Andrew mentioned between Anvil and Vader. A few shoulder tackles and then Vader eliminates Anvil. Vader gets a splash on Lafon, eliminates him. Now it's three on two with the, the USA having the advantage, but um, Vader. Uh, let's see, Vader, yeah, Vader with his second elimination Miro comes in, he looks really good As uh, I think Andrew pointed out too Impressive punches, then he's counted uh, Then he gets countered and he gets pinned Vader comes back in again, so he is just Unbelievable in this match He's almost in it the entire time uh, Goldust doesn't even get in the ring Again, the crowd chants Shable, uh, ch- chants Sable, Furnace hits an Over-the-head suplex on Vader Then a Hurricane Rana, which were pretty Sweet, uh, Vader smacks Goldust, tosses him into the ring uh, Goldust just walks out Into the ring, ducks down, rolls out Walks out, he gets counted out And now it's uh, Vader He's uh, he's down to the the only man Left for the USA And it's against uh, Furnace and the Bulldog It's a Vader bomb on Furnace For the pin, and Bulldog is waiting Right behind him with the ring bail He nails Vader in the back of the head For the one, the two, the three Team Canada, where three of the four Are not from Canada Ends up winning the crowd's hot. The in-ring work was good. It was just the story that um, that needed a little more. It just it felt a little forced with some. We didn't even even if someone like the Patriot who had been around for a while and was gone. Um, I think just he was in the pay per view a month before this. If he's on the USA team instead of like Goldust or whatever, it feels a little right. more at least like USA guy there, questionably, yeah, or a Duggan or you know what I mean, like just someone that had been more of a USA. And it just felt weird having Vader be the man that's that's all patriotic. We're like, really? This guy, like, this guy's like championing the U.S. the U.S. cause. It, yeah. So that that was that was the one thing. I got an and, idea actually on that note, and I what well, it didn't occur to me until just now. You have Sergeant Slaughter right there. Yeah. It's not like he could have done a whole heck of a lot, but could he the have captain done a of the team? Done a couple sure. of spots and put the more than go absolutely. <laughs> Could have done more than Goldust. Hundred, you're right. He would. He could have no at least kidding. been pinned or taken a pin. You know, something. It was just, yeah. The Goldust stuff at this point was sad. We get a Goldust Vader feud, and after this for a little while, and that's just Luna Vachon comes in the mix, and it's just he, Vader's costumes, and he's doing the artist formerly known or Goldust's costumes. He's doing the artist formerly known as Goldust stuff. It's just, it's not great. Uh, yep. Next up, video package for. The in-ring debut of Kane It's Kane versus Mankind And Mankind is back to being Mankind After a short-lived run as Dude Love And I mean I think a lot of people Forget, we think of Foley And you think of a guy who is like A super fan favorite, someone who puts his Body on the line for, for the fans He wants to just bump And have these crazy looking bumps This era of Mick Foley And it, it started when he got The opportunity in ECW to really just say whatever the hell he wanted 
and talk trash to the WWF and the WCW and, and cut these like real promos. His promos from '96 and really on, but especially as Mankind, they're really underrated. He does the stuff that's like he's pulling the pulling the hair out stuff. He does the member the the one with Jim Ross, the interview where he's kind of rocking and he talks about his family growing up and and he's just very very good. I think his mic work. Is underrated He says he doesn't want this to re- be remembered as a wrestling match Because it won't be It's mankind versus a brick wall He's not going over or around He's going through it He screams you know, at Paul Bear And then he ends it with the Have a nice day Darren, I thought this was an excellent promo Yeah, and you're spot on about that I mean, and, and the fact that he was able to do that In three different characters too um, You know, really, really speaks to You know, what kind of a worker he was I mean you have a guy who cultivates a, a character and obviously Cactus Jack, you know, being probably the closest thing, uh, you know, to, to a Mick Foley character, although, you know, Mick always said that he was envisioned himself as dude love as a kid. And that was his character. But, uh, you know, to be able to have these three characters over a wide, such a wide spectrum in terms of just what they were and be able to cut promos as all three of them and keep you kind of interested, despite, you know, no matter which version you got. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, the stuff that he did with Taker as Mankind was great. Um, you know, they had to kind of do something to freshen him up. They gave him the extra characters. Obviously, there was a pop when Cactus Jack eventually showed up. Uh, you, I would love how he would kind of, you know, during different matches, infuse like one of the other characters for a few seconds, you know, in the match, regardless of who he was. I always thought that was rather interesting the way he did that. But yes, uh, I totally agree. His promo work was great. This is uh, certainly an example of that. Uh, the match that he's got coming up, you know, it's nine and a half minutes. He gets his ass kicked for probably eight minutes of the 930. But, uh, you know, he does it in, in the Mankind style like he did against The Undertaker, taking big bumps, getting the oohs and ahs. And uh, the only thing I was waiting for was The Fiend to come out because of the red light. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Mick Foley is one of the top promos in wrestling history. The dude was brilliant. And I remember the story Bret Hart told in his 9,000-page book about how when Mick Foley came into WWF at the time, he thought Foley was just this garbage wrestler who didn't offer a whole heck of a lot. Then he sat down with Foley and just talked the business and talked angles and talked promos and whatnot and came away going, This guy is a genius. And that's the same stuff that Vince picked up on because Vince was not crazy about Foley either. Foley was JR's hire and Vince hired him on board. And it wasn't until Foley did the series of sit down interviews with Jim Ross that he came around and said, this is fantastic. And they figured out what to do with him. That's what Mankind and Mick Foley did. He found ways to keep people engaged, even in things that were further on down the card. He had a cage match with Triple H at a SummerSlam, I believe Mm -hmm. it was. And even that match was shockingly good. He would just find these little things to pick up on where he'd take the ball and run with it. And that's one of the many reasons that we love the guy so much. The other, of course, being that the guy would literally kill himself for the entertainment of the fans. And he came pretty darn close on a number of occasions. Not necessarily this one, although there were a number of big bumps in the Kane match, but he did everything he could to get Kane over as a monster. Kane didn't need a whole lot of help doing that, but fully pushed him over the finish line. 
just one thing to uh, remind you about too, Darren. You are the one that's going to be picking uh, which show we we discuss next. So if you haven't been thinking about it yet, you got the next kind of half of a uh, of our discussion here. And I, I do want to mention because I've got a ton of uh, of sponsors coming up for the next few weeks. That right now is a great time for some of you out there who are listening to go to sarahcandles.com and get a couple candles. And right now, if you do so, use the promo code GINO, you can get 10% off. I know the people uh, that created Sarah Candle Company. I went to school with Tyler Herringer. He was a grade below me, went to school from kindergarten uh, through eighth grade, all the way up, know the family well. These are candles that they were making just for themselves, and they ended up realizing, hey, you know what? We might be able to make a business out of this. They're natural soy wax. They burn longer, and they're they're better for you. They're, they were made because they're healthier They don't get those toxins that you get in some of those other candles 25 different scents Use that promo code GINO Get you a 10% off of your entire purchase And hey, if you're like a, a horse racing fan They have a scent that's named Del Mar And I promise guys, it's not just my up, Losing ripped up tickets It's just not like the, the burning fumes of those It's actually a good smelling candle So check out my friends at SarahCandles.com That's C-E-R-A Candles.com Time for Kane's official WWF debut And I mean this was I think with the the red light It's like we've seen when they've done things like this As you mentioned The Fiend It's something that I never mind when they have an idea They execute the idea And it doesn't really work And then they move away from it I'm fine with trying things right? Try things, some things work, some things don't If it doesn't, you just say hey this was something that looked better on the on the drawing board when we chalked it up. And I think the red light, it's a little too much. It's fine in a squash match. But if you're gonna be going in a match like this, it's almost 10 minutes with Foley and with mankind, I think you want the the regular lighting. Um mankind attacks him before Kane before he gets to the ring. Um remember a lot of this story too is is about how mankind was with Paul Bear for a while. He was he was, you know, Paul Bear's guy for about a year. In his charge against the Undertaker In matches where he actually beats the Undertaker He gets a, a main event you know, Title match against Shawn Michaels In a really good match that he has in an In Your House Where they have just a great, great like Four and a half star uh, match And the one thing we notice about You know, Mick in this match is You know, Mankind Every bump he takes is just so much more devastating In his attempt to get Kane over Sell his character and and entertain us It's just way more than anybody else would do In the same moves, in the same bumps In the same way trying to get someone over Um, Kane tosses Foley into the steps early on Um, Mick is just making him look great It's the red lighting, as Darren mentioned It's like a horror movie Um, And Mankind does that awesome clothesline Where he hits the clothesline And he goes over the top with you Like the double clothesline Kane continues to nail him with the steps And then things start to slow down a little bit Because we can tell Kane's still green He's learning This is the very beginning of the Kane character And there's just lots of little things They they try and do for him To make him seem like the Undertaker Which I like, the sitting up The little landing on his feet Little little touches that show, oh he's like his brother Look, his brother does that So of course Kane's going to do that too Which I, I kind of like Just little things they did they did a hell of a job with this Kane character With this story Darren, um, I know you mentioned it before In, in previous uh, shows that we talked about This, they had been building This guy for a while He came in, they made him look like a monster And this wasn't The giant Gonzalez This wasn't the Kamala that you bring in to face the Undertaker Or the fake Undertaker Or any of the guys that they can lined I up it? Can I do it? Please can do, I do it, it? Please do He's it. He's a big guy that can move. Dun dun dun! Shot 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 shot. 
they, they did one of the best jobs ever with characters with Kane. We think about the Undertaker, but I mean, he is on that short list of this was a a cartoony, goofy character when you think about it. But we all kind of we took him very seriously throughout his entire career. I I think in terms of creative and the ideas that they came up with over the course of the last 30 some odd years, I I think the Kane character and what it represented was one of their best ideas of all. It really was. Yeah. Uh, And and the proof of the pudding is that it was a character based on another character and both of them went on to wrestle for another 20 plus years um, as that character. Now, Granted, there are, you know, characters adapt and, you know, obviously he couldn't stay this mysterious monster for 20 years. Uh, Things need to change. But Kane, corporate Kane, big red machine, whatever you want to call it, continued, as did The Undertaker. Um, I love some of the stuff. Uh, Number one, the early Kane look was my favorite look. That one sleeve outfit. Um... You know, the mask I thought was, I love this original mask of Kane. It kind of has that, you know, Mike Myers kind of like insane looking thing where you can kind of, it's like flat face with a little sliver of a mouth. Uh, I I love the like when, when mankind comes in and he starts like tilting his head to the side, like some kind of like a, you know, sick, deluded monster. You know, def, you could tell he definitely did his homework watching horror movies and taking little things from different characters in horror movies and putting them all together. Um, and then you're right. I mean, some of the cells, you know, the, that bump that he takes where, where Kane just kind of hops on the apron and throws him off the top rope down to the floor with, you know, the thud that you hear there, you know, that's a serious bump that he took there. It was a cool spot for Kane. Um, you know, this served the purpose of building up Kane as a potential monster, um, I was infatuated him at, at, when he first came out, but yeah, I mean, all, all kidding aside, in my, in my opinion, one of the best ideas slash characters that, you know, WWE has had in the last quarter of a century. How many times has WWE tried and failed to do a second version of a popular character yep. in any form? You have Lex Luger being the American hero after Hulk Hogan. That's just one example. There's a whole bunch of other ones. The tag teams, the de- you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, the recreations, anything, anytime they put the word new, you know, in front of a team that wasn't new age outlaws, you know, the new blackjack, the new rock, like how many, th- exactly. And it's just, this was a home run with Kane. Yeah. I mean, anytime they tried to pigeonhole somebody into the Legion of Doom, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, but seconding Darren's point, Kane just plain worked. They gave Glenn Jacobs a lot of time to find himself, and in this role, he nailed it. Mankind helped in this match. He took a number of really sick bumps. The Spanish announced table goes bye-bye, as it was prone to do in the late 1990s every show. The one bump I wasn't crazy about, that unprotected chair shot to the head. Knowing what we know now, oh, man. This was not a terrific match, though, in all seriousness. But as far as the storytelling and doing the job of putting Kane over as a monster by putting him over a guy The Undertaker had feuded with for a large part of 96 and 97, it checked the box. 
Yeah, I think there's there's a point. It's not like a terrific match, but it did what it's supposed to do, and it was it was never supposed to be a terrific match. It's supposed to be, you know, as as mankind mentions it in his promo. I don't want anybody to think of this as a wrestling match. I want you to think of this as a fight. Um, at one point early on, he kind of, he gets the advantage for a while. Foley does. He tosses Kane into the steps. Then he uses the chair. He hits a pile driver, and he signals for the mandible claw. And at this point, Kane's down for like a minute. In the ring, you know, a while because he goes and puts the mandible claw on Paul Bear, who sells it, and then Kane sits up. He ends up attacking mankind from behind, and that's when he hits that that from the apron, which is kind of like a choke slam push. He put he chokes him and then pushes him, and fully just leaps, goes through the the Spanish announce table. I mean, that thing's like six, eight feet away from where they are. It's not just like right there. Um, nasty bump. Somehow he actually gets back and has the advantage for a little while. He hits the DDT on the floor. He crawls to the ring. He hits the elbow off the apron on Kane. He only has a few minutes of offense throughout the match, as Darren mentioned. But the spots are good, and he and he actually makes his offense look like it it means a lot, and and it, it does impact Kane a little bit. They don't. This isn't completely a squash. They want to make sure that because they've built mankind in this Foley character for a while, so they want to make sure that you know. Putting him, getting over him Does take work, which we've seen with The Undertaker Um, Foley gets caught up On the top ropes, he gets slammed by Kane Onto the floor outside the ring And then Kane hits a tombstone pile driver For the win Yeah, did what we needed to do We get the start of Kane And he's going to be someone that One of the shows you've mentioned this, Andrew If you find someone Who says a bad word about Kane, it'll be the first time I've ever Heard it Yeah because I mean, from CM Punk to guy to Bret Hart, you know, you hear everybody say really positive things about him. Yeah, people say it. Working with Kane, working with Glenn was like a night off. The guy got the business. He wasn't necessarily the best in-ring worker, but he was always willing to listen to guys who were in the ring with him, and he always had a mind for what would get over. He would do the little tweaks to the Kane character, and things that shouldn't have necessarily gotten over got over huge. I'm not going to go into the couples therapy thing that he did with Daniel Bryan. Oh, that was great. Team Hell No. Yeah. That was a high point in this podcast when I reenacted that promo. I have to tell you, if you're ever doing a greatest (laughs) hits montage of any of our shows, that's got to be on there. But kidding aside, Glenn Jacobs was a heck of a performer, sharp guy. He's now in politics. He's the mayor of a town in Tennessee. Good for him. And it's a case where this was a guy who... It took a while, but once he found something that worked, they were off to the races with him. So we will get to the next interview now. This, this Darren, wasn't this weird? Just kind of like on the mm-hmm. show, like knowing. So we get an interview where Michael Cole interviews Vince McMahon and Sergeant Slaughter backstage. And they talk about how elevated security is there to make sure this match goes on. And at the end, he says, uh, Mr. McMahon, who's going to win? And Vince says, uh, I don't know. This just was like a it's like a weird thing to have on this show. Yeah, it, it's and that kind of speaks to the point that I was going at. Um this promo to me, the way it's presented, everything I think here is done with a purpose. Why are they asking Mr. McMahon? Why are they asking Vince? The way he's asking it, who's going to win? It's almost implying that, well... You know. Yeah. yeah. You know. So why have that 
promo. Why have Vince out at ringside? And we'll get into this more and more as we get closer, but this is one of the parts of the show that to me, and look, you could say maybe I'm giving Vince too much credit, and maybe I am, but I believe, that this is all part of the most well-orchestrated work in wrestling history. And a part of it being that the theme of it is everybody involved in it made out like a bandit. You know, Brett signs for $9 million. Sean gets a huge win over Brett, gets the title. And he's supposed but to be the guy. Like, we, he, yeah. we, we forget, he gets hurt. And if he's not hurt in 98 to where we don't think he's ever going to wrestle again, he and Austin are the guy for the next few years. They're, they're battling. 100%. The, the Mr. McMahon heel character is created. And, it's not, and if you remember, that's something that's been in the works the better part of this year. And who has it been in the works with? Brett, who this entire time is gearing up to Maybe leave for WCW, maybe re-sign. So, to me, this is all done with a purpose. And there's certain things as we get closer, and we'll talk about it when we get closer to the main event, that add to this. But this promo, I think, is there for a reason. And I think it is all part of what they put together on this night. Darren, I need to tell you something. Uh, your your wife just called. She said she's taking down the board with all the twine that you have, <laughs> linking all the different parts of the conspiracy together. She thinks you look like right Shirley now. Day, and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. She decided that that was just not a good look. Um, yeah. As far as this goes, I'm going to take a different swing at this. Uh, I, I can't get the whole Montreal was a work thing. I can't get to that point. What I will say is, the onset of the Mr. McMahon character, I'll agree with you. That was something that had been in the works. I think that was more a design of Vince looking and saying, oh, my goodness, we're getting smoked in the ratings right now. I need to do something. I need to change things up. And as we found over the last 15, 20 years, ever since the Attitude Era came to a close, what does Vince do anytime he needs to pop a rating on Monday Night Raw? More McMahons. I yep. think this was the genesis of that more than anything else. And I think that is why we got this promo. Yeah, it was, it just was something that was, was strange to see on a pay per view of this, uh, this time period. Um, up next, it is the Nation of Domination versus the Legion of Doom, Ahmed Johnson and Kem Shamrock, which when we're talking about baby faces, like at this point, Ahmed's probably a little beyond where, when he was the hottest, but these are four. Baby faces that are damn over um, LOD obviously is always going to get a pop the, the crowd likes Ahmed And Shamrock, they've done a great job with Shamrock At this point, who we spoke about As the referee in the Brett Austin match You know, about six months earlier At Wrestlemania We get a backstage promo with Hawk Who, uh, he just spits his insane craziness Like always And he says at one point They're all going to be left down And uh, left face down in a pool of blood and he says like something like, I hope you have one of your friends around so they can pick you up out of that pool of blood before you drown. And uh, we get the big pop for Shamrock, big pop for Ahmed, and then the huge pop for the LOD. And then in the Nation of Domination at this point, it is D'Lo Brown, it is Farouk, it is Kama, 
who we used to know and and we know we did know as the Godfather after this, and we knew prior to this as you know Kama Mustafa. Before that, he was Papa Shango, and I mean, Darren, talk about a difference between the the Rocky Maivia that we saw at WrestleMania, huh? This is the Rock here with the Nation of Domination, starting to be the Rock. They're not quite calling him the Rock yet. Yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, yeah, I mean, take a look at what you have going on. You know, some of the big names in this match. You got the Rock. You know, you got Ron Simmons, you got Sam Rock, you got LOD. I mean, you know, you got some serious, serious guys in this match. Um, you know, overall, I, this match disappointed me a little bit because there's some botches in it that don't look particularly good. And I'm not going to outline them all, and, and but I'll just say that there's a lot of spots that didn't go as smoothly as, as they were supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to imagine something is up with Hawk here because he gets eliminated two minutes into the match. Um, and I don't want to speculate as to what that is, but, you know, Hawk's issues are well documented. And there were times where he would go out there and, and kind of not be involved after a couple of minutes. And we knew what that meant. So, you know, it's hard to believe that they would have one half of LOD lose this, you know, be out of this match two minutes in by design. Um, you know, Animal looks like his typical self. One guy that I always thought could really work that never gets much hype is D'Lo Brown. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I always thought that D'Lo was was pretty damn good in the ring. I liked his his big frog splash off the top rope. Uh, I thought he was a fun character. I thought he fit in really well with the Nation of Domination. Uh, Simmons and, you know, Kama at this point look freaking ripped. I mean, Kama's huge. Simmons looked jacked up, too. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's a cool match. You know, I, I guess you have the end result. That, that we're supposed to have, you know, Shamrock is getting, is going to be getting that push coming up in the near future. You know, the crowd obviously is pretty hot into him at this point. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, it, I, I thought this match did what it was supposed to do, but at the same time, uh, you know, could have been better from the standpoint of some of the spots. Um, you know, Shamrock gets the, the, the tap out win, over the rock, setting up a rivalry with them that's going to go on for about six to eight months. Um, but yeah, I mean, to have Hawk and Farouk, the first two guys out inside of five minutes, I, I probably would have just booked this match a little bit different because, you know, you, you had a couple of good workers out there early. Ahmed screwed up a couple of spots. Kama, you know, wasn't much at this point. So uh, work was subpar. Result did what it was supposed to. And you had some big names in the match. I'm going to reiterate something I've said a couple of times on this podcast. Put that version of Ken Shamrock in a time machine. Bring him out now as the UFC champion baddest man on the planet. You have Brock Lesnar in a smaller package with stamina, not afraid to take crazy bumps. That would be the most entertaining thing in the world in the 2020 in-ring style that's been adapted in large part because of UFC and MMA's explosion in popularity. He would be a gigantic star right now, and it boggles my mind that he wasn't a bigger star in his physical prime because the dude could go. He looked like the complete package a lot of the time, and I didn't think they did as much with him as they could have slash should have. I'm glad you mentioned the Hawk promo because my very first note here is Hawk cuts unintelligible promo. If you put subtitles on there, it's literally just a bunch of question marks going, what the hell is this guy saying? Um, Rock gets the quick pin on Hawk after the Rock bottom. Ahmed Johnson, 
a guy that looked like a million bucks right up until the bell rang just cannot sell anything. No. And he's in a position where he's going up against bigger guys who if the other guy isn't selling, they're going to look like crap. So as a result, the other guys looked like crap. However, the worst thing involving Ahmed Johnson was not his fault. He gets pinned, has his feet held down in yeah, front this of was three or four referees. This is just no terrible. One calls it. This the ref is, is literally battling with Farouk to get him off of the pin. And he and it's like, why does this pin go through? And JR and King mentioned this a few times. Like in in all the kayfabe sense, there is some oh, horrendous refereeing going on here. And that's kind of I think what with they just they feel like they miss a lot of spots in that sense throughout the night. Yeah. And that was bad. Uh, New Age Outlaws running with the shoulder pads that they stole from the LOD. They get animal counted out. From a storytelling perspective, I thought that was fine. My big beef with the end sequence of this match, and I thought the last five minutes of this match almost saved the match entirely. I've got one problem. Shamrock is in there with D'Lo and The Rock. D'Lo's begging for for the ability to tag out so Rock can come in. D'Lo tags out, they do a double team, Shamrock knocks them both over, Rock bails to the floor, Shamrock puts the ankle lock on D'Lo, He's not a legal man. not the legal man, yep. and D'Lo taps. Now, the segment with Shamrock and The Rock was pretty good. I I'm agree. I'm going to say yep. it was great, but it was pretty good. Rock was still trying to find himself in the ring. He does the people's elbow to no reaction. Pretty stark contrast to mm-hmm. what would happen in just a couple of years. Rock taps to the ankle lock after that sequence. Shamrock looks like a killer. So mission accomplished there. This, though, as I'll agree with Darren on, was a match that could have been significantly better than it was. Yep, the uh, quick quick run through. Uh, the, yeah, Hawks out of there early, nailed from behind, by, and, and then he gets uh, the rock bottom. Um, Ahmed eliminates Farouk with that pearl rubber plunge, so it's three on three. And then Farouk holds down Ahmed's feet from the outside the ring, and that horrible spot with the refs where they're trying to stop him, and they still just let this go. Um, horrible officiating. And then that's when that weird random echo sound comes in, and King blames it or uh, on Kevin Dunn, and Jr. says it's Kane. Um, Animal eliminates Kama. It's down to two on two. Uh, Animal gets uh, eliminated, and so it's down to Rocky and D'Lo versus Ken Shamrock. He hits a nice belly to belly on D'Lo, puts him in the ankle lock. He taps out. Um, Rock nail. This is another thing that that bothers me in some spots, and it's like Hebner. You know, bless him. We know the name. When you watch him refereeing a lot of these matches, it's like, okay, I don't know who creates or comes up with the spot here, but Shamrock is back. Is facing Hebner He's right facing Hebner and Hebner's facing In front of him so they're like you know Front to back and then right behind them Rock comes up and hits Shamrock in the back with a chair It's like okay even if you don't see this there is No way in hell you're not hearing this you're Literally to the point where Ken got almost Shamrock almost got hit into you by This chair you have to have heard this chair Just another kayfabe thing that's just Like okay another Missed spot so there's you know Four or five things in this match alone That could have been a little cleaner And probably makes this match better as a whole um, And ends up Maybe five or six minutes of a a little Nice mini match between The Rock and Shamrock And this is probably when they looked at these two guys And went, you know what, this is a feud These guys have some chemistry This could be the start of something And I think, again, I feel completely Similar with both of you guys Match that could have been better 
Uh, the crowd was pretty hot for this though And I think they really did the did the job With both of these two guys Putting them over Even in defeat Rock still looks good He has a good little 5 minute sequence A couple near falls A nice DDT He's getting in better shape physically now He's getting some of those Rocky sucks chants And he's just playing good heel And then suplex machine You know Ken, Sam, uh, Ken Shamrock Before we got suplex city Brock Lesnar He's dropping suplexes all over the place All in all the end picked it up, just as Andrew said. Decent, not quite as good as the other uh, um, elimination match, but definitely better than the first two that we saw. And, and we got two, you know, future stars. It's just a bummer that I think we talked about this too. There, there, there felt like there were two points where they really missed the boat on Shamrock. I think at WrestleMania, um, what fourteen in '98 when he has the match against The Rock, and they they take the title away from him right there, and yeah. then. And then when he turns heel, yep. And I think those are the two things that killed that really just killed him because he was great as that snap. The crowd loved the root for him, and as soon as he went heel and he was involved in the corporation, and then they tried to turn him back, and he was just never the same. And, and I think those two things, and we we can like pinpoint parts in people's careers where it they always say like wins and losses don't matter, but doesn't it feel like with him or with the Luger winning in ninety three SummerSlam against Yokozuna, it sure as hell feels like those wins would have mattered. Back then I would argue wins and losses mattered a heck of a lot more sure. than they do now. Because yeah. back then you were legitimately building up guys. Now WWE's prime objective is building up their brand, which is a completely different Great animal point. and a different beast. So back then absolutely wins and losses mattered. The heel turn didn't make sense to me at the time. And looking back, it certainly looks like they missed the boat with him winning the IC title at WrestleMania. That should have been his moment. I get why they kept the title on The Rock, and it's tough to really make a justification for, oh, Rock should have put yeah, Shamrock no, over, you're right. given that Rock became the megastar that he was, but he wasn't there yet. He was still formulating himself, and if you really wanted to put the title back on The Rock, you could have done so at the pay-per-view the next month or on Raw the next night, for goodness sake. Nobody would have noticed. Nobody would have cared. People would have remembered Ken Shamrock holding the belt up high at WrestleMania. Yeah, they're um, and, and then the, after this, like the way they build up um, Shamrock, Darren, he's facing Shawn Michaels at the next pay per view the next month in the main event for the title. Yeah, I, I mean, they obviously he was a guy that they had big designs on that got big reactions, and you know sometimes there are your eyes get bigger than your stomach, and it kind of things start to move a little bit faster than you want them to move. And you end up making mistakes. And unfortunately, you know, that's kind of what happened with Shamrock. Uh, you know, I agree. Uh, you know, you take Shamrock and you, you know, fast forward 20 years, the star that he could be today, forget about it. Um, because for all the reasons that Andrew said, and we've highlighted them a few times on this show in the past. But, yeah, it is unfortunate that they didn't really capitalize on what they had, they knew what they had, and you could mm-hmm. tell. You could tell right uh, away. They yeah. knew right away because they put him. They they jolt him right into a main. And it was funny. Like I remember not thinking at this time. Like I don't think he's gonna. But the way he was built up, you're going. I mean, maybe he's got a shot to beat Sean. Like you're you're thinking that they're they're making you believe this with how they're they're selling you on him and how they're putting him over. So they did a hell of a good job in in six months from him being the special guest referee to. He's main eventing the pay-per-view at the end of the year. Yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, and I won't say that they do this, you know, 
at a chronic pace where they screw stuff up. But there's a quite a long list of guys that you can say they knew that they had something big. Mm-hmm. And they went in a direction that they screwed it up. Uh, sometimes they get it back. You know, The Rock being a prime example of that. You know, obviously they saw charisma. They saw a good worker. They saw a guy that could talk on the mic. They saw a guy that had a great look. They said, okay, this is a potential star. Let's make him Hulk Hogan. Yes. Screwed him up from the beginning. Shamrock, you know, a lot of the attributes that they saw, that they liked, the, the pops that this guy got, and screwed it up. You know, fast forward to today. Roman Reigns, you know, monster-looking guy, got massive pops with the shield. I mean, you, you know, you remember his first Royal Rumble and he was throwing everybody out. The place was going nuts. Yep. Uh, when he was in the final two against Batista. Everybody in that arena was, was you know, behind Roman. Uh, the Survivor Series where Roman eliminated the entire team by himself. The place went nuts. Um, but they screwed it up. So there, there's a pretty good history of having these big stars – and them not knowing exactly what to do with them. Uh, yeah. And unfortunately, Shamrock falls into that category. Okay, now we get to uh, the big two matches on the show. We It's Stone Cold versus Austin. Uh, Stone Cold versus Austin. Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Owen. Before we get to that, though, we get that promo video for Degeneration X in your house, which is in uh, December in the next month. And we get the build-up package for the Stone Cold versus Owen. This is Austin's first match since SummerSlam, and they actually start with the build-up of Austin back to King of the Ring 1996, when he really became, you know, Stone Cold Austin 316. They show Mania uh, 13 and his battles with the Hart Foundation all through 97. And I don't know about you guys, but I remember watching this live and being. Very shocked that Stone Cold was wrestling at this point. Like I thought when he had that injury, he was going to be out for a long time. And I think we'll get to the match. It's not really much, honestly. It's four. It's a four-minute match. There's a lot of stalling that goes on before. I think the one major thing I take out of this match, though, um, Andrew, is that they were trying to play it very, very safe with Stone Cold with Austin. They were not having him bump a lot. They were teasing the pile driver a few times, which is what they needed. This was a weird, a weird match though to have in Canada for his comeback because the crowd loved Austin so much. They didn't want to hate Austin, but they love Owen to the point where they're actually cheer- chanting at one point to break his neck. So that's the only thing I thought was a little bit weird. Maybe they could have had a better place. For Austin to make his return I, Honestly when it's on the calendar there's nothing they can do about it he, It's still fine and it, there's a lot of energy Into it here but if if he's Coming out at Madison Square Garden For his first match back The crowd is absolutely insane Yeah but if they had waited Any longer they might no. have missed out On the opportunity to Great point. Yeah, you, just, you can't wait it's easy to yeah. hindsight Is 2020 you know what I mean it's easy to go back and say Well they could have made this a little bit better But yeah no Yeah and especially with the fact that Six months later, he's getting his hand raised at WrestleMania and is the new face of the company. They needed every inch of runway they could get to get to that point, and this certainly helped. The match. I got to tell you guys, maybe I'm just overly sensitive. Seeing that pile driver from SummerSlam just makes me queasy because really you crazy. know how close Austin was to never being able to, let alone wrestling, walk again. I mean, that's downright scary 
And the fact that it came at the hands of Owen Hart Owen. up until this point was considered one of the safest workers that you could potentially have a match with. One of the guys where if you were in the ring with them, it was a night off. It's just, it's sad on a number of levels. And you could tell Owen was never really comfortable with the whole Owen 316 says, I just broke your neck thing. And it makes sense because think about it. If your, rep, if your reputation is as a very safe worker, a guy that does things the right way, and oop, something you just did almost broke the neck of one of the biggest stars in the company, let's run with it and sell some T-shirts. Yeah. No, that's not natural at all whatsoever. And it wound up being a situation where I felt bad for a lot of people involved because Austin clearly was not ready to be back there mentally, maybe not physically either. He'd get there, thankfully, and we'd wind up with a really good WrestleMania match against HBK, but he wasn't there at this point. The crowd does do the break his neck chant. That's awkward. The commentary team, however, has a couple of really good lines. I believe it was JR who said, Neidhart doesn't know where he is. That's nothing revolutionary. He <laughs> <usually> doesn't. <laughs> Lawler says that Owen's opening up a can of Hall ass as he walks back up the aisle way. Uh, the one spot in the match I did like was Owen grabs a camera cord outside the ring. He starts choking Austin and he dares the referee to disqualify him. Yeah. Because then, of course, he'd leave with his title. I thought that was actually a pretty creative yeah, little do. spot, yeah. but they get back in the ring and it's very clear they're under strict instruction go out there for four minutes and then go home because Austin hits the kick wham stunner with very little in the way of lead up to it. Austin wins the match. Austin wins the title. And that's really it. As far as Owen near the main event is concerned, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. this was Owen's last time really up this high on the card after the Montreal screw job. He sort of got relegated into doing other things Well, because they had that, that little time yeah. andrew where, where it was it looked like I, I i honestly thought they were gonna let owen win the title for like a night and then lose it back because they had him as that black heart you know and they were they were billing him they let him they let him have a little feud with sean you know for, and it felt like he was gonna win the title he had a match or two and then you're completely right he becomes he's in the nation of domination not long after and then he's back to the blue blazer. I did like some of the stuff they did with him as a tag team with uh, with Jarrett. They actually had yeah. some pretty good chemistry. But you're right; he's never even in some kind of an actual feud towards like the top of the middle part of the card. It's just yeah. it's unfortunate. Yeah, and it's one of those situations where yeah, Austin wins the Intercontinental Title. You put a bow on that storyline, and it winds up rocketing Austin up near the top of the card as one of the company's top acts and then eventually winds up being the guy. So again, it's a case where you check the box as far as what they were trying to accomplish, but that doesn't mean it was pretty getting there. Yeah. You know, it's a match that they wanted to have. They wanted to make sure that the fans didn't forget about Austin um, because on this pay-per-view was going to be a huge moment between Brett and Sean, and they probably thought it was important that Austin be on that card mm-hmm. uh, because they obviously had grand designs for him going forward. Look, um, you know, looking this through the eyes of a, you know, 37-year-old who understands things more now than I did at 14, you could see what they did here, you know, the protecting of Austin and, and what the goal was, you know, for this match. Um I agree. I made a note on the disqualifying me thing that Owen was doing outside. I thought that was a neat spot. 
um, they kind of recreated the sequence going into the pile driver mm-hmm. where, you know, he does that tilt, the world comes down, but this time uh, Austin kicks him in the, in the stomach, gives him the finger and stuns him out of nowhere to get the win. Um, so I thought that was, that was kind of cool. Um, but even in that sequence, when they're doing that tilt the world thing, you could see that they're being very careful. Um, and they should be, obviously. They're, they're protecting Steve. Uh, they obviously don't want anything to happen to him. I mean, the match is only four minutes long. There's really not a whole lot you could say about it. It is what it is. It does what it's supposed to do. Uh, and it is unfortunate that this is pretty much it for Owen at this point of a card because, look, we know how good he was. Uh, and, you know, I'll go to my grave saying that Owen deserved a lot more time yep. in in a spotlight in WWE than he actually Amen. had. 100%. Um it's yeah it just there it, it it i forgot about about this too you know it's just a little there's just a couple things that just feel a little bit off but you, you they had to get this done they had to get you know um to to get stone cold to get his win back i just think about how weird in in reading you know a lot of brett stuff as andrew mentioned like brett talks about if you read any of brett's books or ever hear brett on podcasts or in interviews he remembers everything because he documented everything all throughout his career Every day he had like a diary that was like a, a recording. You know, he'd either write things down or he'd record when he was on the road, talk about the matches. He would he would talk about things because he wanted to get better. Like what happened? Hey, there's what we did tonight. But then he would mention all the stuff that happened throughout the day. So he just has this recollection of things that are incredible. And and Brett talks about how, you know, this must have been so hard and and weird and uncomfortable for Owen. Not only for Austin, obviously, but really for Owen, because like we mentioned, Owen has been one of the best workers that we've ever seen in in WWF up to this point, and and Austin hates him right now. Like in in yeah. real life, Stone Cold at this point in 1997 is not has not forgiven Owen. He's not like on good terms with him. This must have been like a little weird to get back in the ring with someone who just broke broke your neck a few months earlier. May have. You came close, very close to ending your career, just as you are about to break out, which which Austin's been, you know, tr- been on the on the cusp of doing for so many years, as stunning Steve, or just right at the mid card, he finally gets there, and this guy Owen almost like ends it for you, and now you got to come back and have a match. It just was, I kept thinking about that because that's something that Brett had mentioned, just what the the like the emotions between these two guys, and maybe a little awkward as they went back and forth in the ring, and and they are. They're outside the ring. When Owen comes down the aisle, you get you get a big pop for Stone Cold, even in Canada. And one thing I noticed right away too, I miss the old Owen music. That's that's the rocket music that I want. And he's accompanied to the ring by Bulldog, Furnace, and Lafon. I mean, they they take a slow walk down to the ring, and then they're standing outside the ring, not joking, for three minutes. Almost almost as long as this match is This match goes just over four minutes They're standing outside Just not getting into the ring For three minutes So all of this all together ends up taking about ten minutes The entrances, everything um, But they just, they're trying so hard To not have Austin bump To not really do anything um, Owen keeps teasing the pile driver You can tell Stone Cold's like Feeling his, figuring his body out um, Owen keeps trying to duck out the ring and leave Austin chases him That's kind of when the match gets going He chases him down the aisle It ends up being a fight um, Owen ducks out the other side of the ring And that's when the crowd starts chanting break his neck 
Owen does the choke with the cord <laughs> That's what the, the spot that you guys mentioned Which is funny I mean he, he doesn't want to win this match He just wants to lose by DQ or count out And get the hell out of here And uh, Owen, and then afterwards he goes himself And rings the bell Which yeah. was great too it, Ding ding you know like oh, I'm out Like Bell's been rung guys I'm done Which you know and knowing that we What we know about Owen is just like a prankster I'm sure a lot of guys backstage probably just like chuckled at that That just seemed like a funny thing that would like bust up Some of the guys backstage Um yeah, just not much about the match. Austin's your new IC champ, and he's on the way to becoming the biggest star in the history of professional wrestling for a two to three year period uh, coming up. And following this, he actually has, I believe, his one of his first matches and kind of the first feud with The Rock um, over the IC title until he bec- until he gets into the the main event title picture until he ends up winning the Rumble. But this is the point where uh, where he and The Rock fight over the IC title. So the two. From that previous Survivor Series match that we talked about um, The Rock and Shamrock They both end up going into feuds with Shawn Michaels And with Stone Cold So we could see right away they were building those guys in that match Setting them up for big things down the line Um, But uh, It's Yeah it's The starting off point for Stone Cold Steve Austin After that The first starting off point We never thought I honestly remember for a few months wondering if he was ever going to wrestle again. Like it never sounded good, and I remember thinking as a kid too, like knowing this wasn't storyline, knowing the guy was really hurt. You know, like this wasn't some guy that they said he's out for a while because uh, earthquake sat on Hulk Hogan's chest, and you know, it's this wasn't one of those. We knew he was really hurt. He was really back. So uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin on the way. Okay, here we go. It is time for the Montreal Screw Job. Shawn Michaels versus Bret Hart We get the The video package We get all the build up And it, it really starts at 96 Mania But as I mentioned in the intro I mean they could have gone back to 92 And started pulling out footage from these guys They could have gone back to 90 When there was the Rockers against the Hart Foundation In, in matches and, and pulled them out And what I really liked about this um, At this point too The stuff they did with the little backstage stuff they show Sean walking from his dressing room with Triple H, with uh, with Rude, and with China, and and then you know Sean comes out and he he starts doing all the stuff in the ring. Before we get that, we get up all we get all the build up. So let's build this up a little bit more with some of the video package with everything. I mean, people that talk about Brett and that don't you know use Brett in the conversation of like be, uh, best of all time, um, they for the reason say it's because of his mic work. You look at this Brett from 97 And I think it's something that we've seen even more on the rewatch 93 King of the Ring may not have been a great show for him Like, you know, with some of his promos But for the most part, he always gets the point across He does what he's supposed to do And this 97 version of Brett from the, from the moment when he gets screwed At the beginning of the year Like he gets screwed in a title match against Sid And then in the Rumble he gets screwed And then it's like he's getting screwed all throughout the year So the best heels, Darren are the ones where they're they're re- they're right. They're being they're they be- they believe that they are the good guy. They don't believe they're the bad guy. And and I remember as a kid, as someone who loved Brett and didn't, I was like, why are the crowd? Why is this crowd booing him? I would I would think that like he's right. He's getting screwed. We love Brett. Stop booing this guy. You know. And then he it, he became great as this heel with the Heart Foundation and the back and forth they would do in Canada and USA. It was just he had a magical. You're on the mic, and we see a lot of it in in this this video package buildup. No, you do. And he does a, he does a phenomenal job throughout '97. They change his character. 
Um, you know, a lot of people said that he was becoming a crybaby, but look, I mean, the stuff that was happening to him and his character was justifiable for him to be pissed off. Um, and I thought he got his point across extremely well. Uh, I thought it was probably some of the best mic work that he ever did. And it was all at a time that his career was at a crossroads, which adds to, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. And, you know, it makes you wonder, okay, if this guy's leaving the company, why are we putting in this much effort to this guy where we're almost reinventing his character and really making this entire year about Bret Hart. If I'm telling him I can't pay him this money, you normally, you know, when, when, when guys get pushed out the door or guys tell you that they're leaving or the end is near, they do not become front and center of the big storylines throughout the year. They get end up pushing to the back of the, the line or they're used to job for somebody repeatedly. Brett wins the title this year twice, uh, including a win at SummerSlam over The Undertaker. Uh, in the, during all this, Vince is supposedly, you know, figuring out that he can't pay Brett all this money, and he's trying to get out of the contract. More of the stuff that does not add up with the year that Brett had and what ended up, you know, happening at the end of 1997, which is are you know, more of the part of the reason that speaks to my point as to what I think was actually going on. Darren, your tinfoil hat is on crooked. Just <laughs> no. Um, no, kidding aside here, such a good video package. I've said this a couple of times. We didn't know what was storyline and what was real. And that was some of the mm-hmm. really terrific stuff that Brett was doing on the mic because as both Gino and Darren have attested, Stuff he was saying made sense. And it goes back to one of the great theories about heel work by Michael Hayes. A heel always believes he is right. And in this instance, there was a lot of truth to some of the stuff that Bret Hart was saying. It was just a matter of some of the audience didn't want to hear it at the time, given everything that was going on in the world and with Bret's character and the way it was portrayed. It was incredibly well done. The one thing I am going to point out, though, is you mentioned that it was pretty much the entire year of Brett and da-da-da-da-da. Two things. One, he went through a stretch that year where he didn't wrestle. He was in the wheelchair. He had just had surgery. So the fact that he managed to keep himself over. And he was the champ at that time. Yes. That was like when he had the belt, yeah. That's a testament to how good he was on the mic at that point. Now, the one thing I will say that goes against not all of what Darren was talking about, but a little of what he was talking about is it wasn't the entire year where McMahon was saying, I can't pay you, I can't pay you, whatever. I believe the rumblings of that started around September. I so don't it might have been after SummerSlam when he'd already, yes. he'd already won the belt at that point, and that exactly. was when he starts. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and I think that makes that make a little bit more sense. Now, after all of that, Darren, that's where you've got a little bit of a point. But as far as everything, I would say leading up to SummerSlam for sure, the justification was things were fine. We can give him the benefit of that on that, right? Yeah. We can we can say at the very least that maybe he didn't know until around September when he's realizing like, uh oh, okay, I don't think and I'm going to be able. You, this is around the time where WCW is beating Raw in the ratings every week, and there are people within the company that are scared about their paychecks. So, 
I'm just saying that much I get. So, I mean, there's just so much going into this, and we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll hit on a lot of it throughout the match, and then uh, and then even uh, even post match, the Shawn Michaels coming out to the ring, and um, and then wiping his nose with the Canadian flag, oh. humping it, and and I mean some really crazy signs in the crowd at that point of like the slurs, as, as like we mentioned earlier, like homophobic stuff, racial stuff all throughout. Yeah, I, I just wonder right here, so. What what a lot of this rumor was now there's there's a story that that actually says Earl Habner is is the referee in this match and there's a story that Brett could kind of sense in some of his conversations with Vince because we re- remember at this point the reason why any of this is even an issue is because Brett is the man he has complete creative control in what in what's going on in his matches that was like one of the things that Vince had give given him. In order to lure him back and bring him back in 96 when the company was really struggling and, and Shawn Michaels run as the main guy didn't really work So Brett kind of can, can sense that, that they may be doing something weird or you know they haven't really figured out a good finish They keep they keep going back and forth Brett will suggest something and then they say no And then you know Hunter at Triple H becomes kind of heavily involved in telling Vince to hey you Brett needs to look bad here. He's leaving, you know, just kind of as Darren was mentioned, he's leaving the territory. He needs to be, you know, putting Sean over. Brett doesn't want to do that. So Brett actually approaches Earl Hebner the, the day before and he says, Earl, I, they're going to try to screw me in this match. I'm just letting you know they're going to try to screw me. And Earl at this point doesn't know anything. Earl has not been like clued in that he's going to have to. And the match really call for the bell, do anything. And Earl tells Brett, I, I swear on my kids' lives, I will never do anything like that to you. And so Brett kind of felt pretty comfortable when he went walking out to the ring, thinking, they're not going to do something like this. And there's also a rumor that a, a very nervous Shawn Michaels has this really great conversation with Brett right before they go out. And they kind of talk. They talk all about the match. They they set the match all up. And they Brett and Brett even says that, you know, knowing now he he can feel that like Sean's saying things like, "Man, yeah, we've had all." They're kind of like reminiscing and having this like chat, which is so eerie because you can tell that Sean is feeling guilty at this point. You know, Sean doesn't really admit that. You know, as later as Andrew said, he's very pilled up and drugged up, and he doesn't remember a lot. But you could tell, right? It's like it's like Judas giving the kiss. Before he goes out, you know, you know, it's like he's just just telling, making sure that Brett really doesn't think anything's going to happen. Hey, Brett, you know, I kind of respect everything that's going on here and we're going to have this great match back and forth, you know, and this and that. And so Brett's thinking, you know, I talked Vince. I talked to Vince. Vince is still giving me like, I love you, pal. And you're the man like Vince at this point isn't mad at Brett. That's why Brett doesn't know what's going what's really going to go on, because Vince isn't like pissed off at him. It's it's a weird dynamic, but he's not mad. Vince is the one that made Brett leave. Brett isn't leaving on his own. He's being kind of forced to leave because Vince can't afford to pay him. So there's just all of this weird emotion between Brett and Sean, and like what's Sean thinking when he comes out to the ring, all anxious. And 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 then well, you know you guys can kind of start the match a little bit. What I liked, Darren was uh was you know Jr. Some of the things that that you uh, I think you hit on earlier. Is you know Jr. says something along the lines of you know we've been waiting 18 months to get Hart versus Michaels in a rematch and the smart money says you will never ever see it again and I mean 
This is really when you can kind of feel that angst in the building. It is. And you hit on a few things that kind of spoke to some of the inconsistencies that I was talking about. So on a couple of the notes that you made, I'll dive in. You talked about the Brett and Earl stuff, right? So in the Vice show, Earl says that Brett bought him a first-class ticket on the plane. They were on the plane together. Mm -hmm. And Earl goes up and sits next to Brett and has this conversation that that you spoke about. Now, now here's an inconsistency because in another podcast that Brett talked about it, he said that that conversation with Earl happened at an arena in Detroit a couple of days before. It's a small thing, but Brett writes everything down, right? Brett remembers everything. So that's a pretty big difference of we had this conversation in the locker room in Detroit versus Brett paid for a first-class ticket for Earl to come sit next to him on the plane. So there's an inconsistency right there. The Triple H stuff, where Triple H's famous line in this whole thing that he claims is, he told Vince, the quote is, if Brett's not going to do business, we have to do business for him. Okay, fine. Here's my problem with that. This is 1997. At this point, who the hell is Triple H? I know. Triple H has been in this company for less than two years. He was a guy that was on the opposite. Yes. I mean, Vince yes. hated him. He got yes. squashed by the Warrior. He had yes. the King of the Ring taken away from him, I believe, in 96 yes. and given to Austin. And yes. there's a there's these rumors about how and like Triple H, they yes. have these Wednesday night talks on the phone and stuff. And it yes. just, that seems so, bogus to me. I completely agree. Who the hell is Triple H right now? Triple H right now that he's telling Vince that they need to do business for a guy that's been one of the faces of the company for a decade. So I'm calling bullshit on that one right from the jump. Now, then you get into one of the other things where we talk about, you know, Sean coming into this and Sean's all over the place. And I get it. He's pilled out of his mind so he can't remember anything. But Sean talks about they had this great talk. Brett has no recollection of this talk. And Brett says that this whole thing is because Sean, so, you know, when he went over to Sean and said, I will always be a professional with you. I'll make sure that everything is safe. I'll never hurt you in the ring. I'll put you over. And Sean's response was, I appreciate that, but I won't do the same thing for you. Brett remembers that. Yeah. Brett doesn't remember any of this other stuff about this great conversation with Sean. Then we get into the real inconsistency thing of whose uh, whose idea was it to have Sean put the sharpshooter on Brett? Now, I'm not kidding you, okay? No less than five people claim to be the mastermind of this plot. Whose idea it was. Okay? At one time, it's Pritchard who says... He came up with it, and then another time says he didn't, like we talked about earlier, he didn't even know this was going down, and he even had to talk to Vince three days later. Okay, Then Russo says that was there it. was a meeting at Vince's house with him, Cornette, and McMahon, where Russo came up with the idea. Cornette says, I was at that meeting. Russo's out of his mind. Everything he came up with was nonsense, and he's the biggest liar 
in the world. Brett says on a podcast with Austin that it was Pat Patterson that came up to him and said, you know, that's a really cool spot when you uh, let somebody try to put the sharpshooter on you and you reverse it. It's a really beautiful spot. But at the same time, Brett's acknowledging that it's not because Pat was trying to get him screwed. Pat knew nothing about it. He was just telling Brett that it was a really cool spot. So, and then another point, Brett says on another podcast that it was his idea. I, I was going to say that there was, there was definitely other people who have said it was Brett's idea. So, I mean, we've literally heard five different people who were supposed to be behind this. Right. So, and then listen, I understand that some people want to take credit, okay? And we could, we could talk about that till we're blue in the face. So now we – here's where I start to lose my mind with this thing, okay? Start, Darren. Start. Yeah. And, and, and here's where I'm going with this, okay? When, when something is not what it claims to be, you get a lot of different stories from a lot of consistencies because they can't remember what they told everybody about it. And the more time passes, the more out of control and the more spiraling out of control that stuff gets. Now, there's other stuff too. I mean, the punch on Vince, right? We hear from Brett, I Vince came, uh, Taker went, he Taker was pissed. And he went to get Vince. Vince comes in. I tell him, I'm going to take a shower. You better not be here when I get out. I take a shower. I start to get dressed. I do everything but put a shirt on. Then I get up. We come to each other. We're, we're grappling a bit. And I throw this great uppercut that connects in his jaw. And I knock him out. Okay, well, he says that. Shane says, Vince walked into the room. None of that happened. And Brett just walked up to him. And hit him with the uppercut in the jaw right off the bat. Vince says he didn't get hit in the jaw. He got punched in the temple, and that's why he's got a black eye, which I don't know if anybody's been in a fist fight. You get hit with an uppercut in the jaw, you're not getting a black eye. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, there's a lot of stuff that does not add up. And if you want to say I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, that's fine. But you can't escape the fact. That you've got 20 different stories about 20 different things because, in my opinion, everybody is making up bullshit to try to cover what was a plan that maybe people didn't know about until it happened. And then, you know, they've been instructed to make up all these different stories. And maybe some of the people we heard didn't know and, and, and or yeah. don't even. And, and I, I think... I don't think, you know, I think this is one of those things where the guys involved would take this, if it was the case, they would take yeah. this to their graves. And I, Andrew, they wouldn't tell anybody else. And Andrew, I'll, I'll send it to you from here, okay? And, and I'll leave it at this one. You know, the whole thing where Brett, Brett can't lose in Canada, he's not dropping the belt to Sean for all those reasons. Brett said he didn't want to lose that night in Canada. But he told Vince, if we do something, we have a schmoz or Sean gets blindsided, and I go over at Survivor Series, I have no problem dropping the belt to him on Raw the next night if Sean shows me that he'll put me over and then I'll put him over. Why didn't Vince just take that out? Why didn't Vince say, okay, well, sure, go on Raw, lose the belt the next night on Raw. My ratings suck on Raw. I need to you know, find a way to pump that show up a little bit. Why not take that out? Why and go the next, the next night in a schmoz, the night before, two in a schmoz, yeah. so it doesn't even Why make Brett look strong. Right. 
Why go through this lavish screw job instead of taking that easy way out? I can actually answer this. Okay. So you know who you can blame for this? Medusa. <laughs> You're right. A couple of years prior, Medusa jumps from WWF to WCW. She's still the women's champion. She still has the belt and she throws the belt in the trash can. How did that look to WWF? Gino, Darren, short answers, please. I think, I mean, look, if we're going to really put Brett side by side with Medusa. I think that he's going to, uh, he's going to do that. Okay. But um, yeah. I don't, think, I don't think Vince really believed that Brett was ever going to walk onto that show with the belt. I agree with that. And I agree that nobody thought Brett was going to do the unprofessional thing. I also think Vince decided he couldn't roll the dice on that because had he rolled the dice on that, what would the ratings have looked like the next morning? No, that's, and that's a, and that's a good rebuttal. And that's a a fine rebuttal to, to a lot of the stuff that Darren said that makes a lot of, a ton of sense. Yeah. Now there's some stuff that Darren said that does make a whole lot of sense. I don't believe anything Earl Hebner says. I think the way he handled stuff was really scummy. I mean, we're talking about a guy who actually got in trouble later and fired from the business, from them, from like steal for like selling memorabilia and stuff like weird, like weird things we kind of heard about, about Earl. Yeah. When he worked the independent circuit, a couple of friends of mine went to an indie show in Binghamton, New York, just down the road from where I went to college in Ithaca. And they reported Earl Hebner was wearing and selling T-shirts that said, yes, I did, in response to the chance he would always get for the you screwed, you screwed Brett, Brett, you screwed Brett, you screwed Brett, whatever. I can't take anything he says seriously after that. I think that's a really scummy, shitty thing to do. Um, so I don't trust a lot of what he was saying. The stories about, you know, I swear on my kids, whatever. Yeah, that's it, it, that doesn't hold water with me. Now, one thing I will agree on is wrestling's a business built on tall tales. I think everybody involved decided we need to come up with something that says we came up with this because this is professional wrestling. And if we can say we came up with this, it might lead to a payday down the road. I don't think it necessarily makes any sense to do that, but that's the old school wrestling mentality. So it's not surprising that Vince Russo decided I'm going to take credit for this. Jim Cornette hates Vince Russo. So he's trying to debunk that at every possible opportunity. Mentioning Triple H a little bit. The one thing that makes me think he might be telling the truth is he was the one guy that was constantly riding with Sean and basically taking care of him. Well, the, the thing about Triple H that I, I do will uh, to piggyback this, and he was clean. He never drank and did yes. drugs. He's always well, I mean, been a clean guy. Steroids, but you know yeah. that's, that, that's basically <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah. wrestlers at this you're, point. You're right. So yeah. I buy the fact that Triple H might have had something to say there. There were also stories about how when he was in WCW coming up as terrorizing, he would make remarks going to the power plant to train talking about if I ran things, here's how I do it. Here's how I do it. Here's how I would do it. And now we have the performance center that has all of his ideas in motion. So I buy him potentially being outspoken at this point. He's 
sort of carried the bag for the incident at MSG where Razor and Diesel said goodbye and they broke kayfabe. So at this point, I buy that maybe he earned his stripes enough to where he felt confident enough to say, screw him. If he doesn't want to do business, we'll do business for him. I at least buy that that might have happened. I will concede Darren's point that there are inconsistencies going on. Do I think there is anything nefarious about that? Maybe, maybe not. I would lean towards the maybe not simply because, again, wrestling is built on tall tales and legends and people exaggerating houses, people exaggerating the things that they were able to do, people wrestling well past their primes because they claim they were capable of so much years and years and years before. It's a situation where I'll concede that maybe we're not going to know everything until after Vince passes away. But do I think that it was necessarily a work? I don't know. Because here's the other thing. Brett had so many chances to go to WCW prior to this. He really, truly did. He was going to jump in the early 90s. 92, Rumble. Yep. Yeah, right around there the Rumble. There was a contract thing that went on to where it prevented him jumping stayed in WWF. He drops the title to Sean. Nobody knows what the heck he's going to do. He goes to film Lonesome Dove. He gets courted by WWF and WCW. Stays with Remember that promo that he had on Raw when he actually like talks about getting other offers and and maybe going there? It, It was it was different. Yeah. And you got the sense. And yes, obviously Vince knew he had already signed, but you got the sense that Vince clearly didn't want to lose this guy. I believe that Vince panicked. I believe Vince saw ratings telling one story and trying to find ways to jolt the business. I believe he saw Brett as, okay, this guy is after 40. He can still work, but there's a lot of the younger guys that we want to push. In a way, it's a little bit similar to what happened with Flair in the early 90s where the guy was a top guy, but Vince had designs on phasing him out in favor of the younger guys. Now, do I think the Montreal screw job was a work necessarily? I just can't go that far. I think it was a case where Vince wanted Brett out and was going to do whatever it took to do that and sort of locked into the Mr. McMahon character the night after saying Brett screwed Brett. I don't want to say by accident, but I think it was a case where there was an emergency meeting called and someone said, now what? And someone said, well, Vince, you should just run with this now. You're the bad guy boss. Everybody has a bad guy boss at some point. Vince saw money and rolled with it. I think that is the the way that I'm inclined to believe that it went down. Obviously, we can't say for certain what went down because there are only a couple of people that know, and we're not going to find out until at least one or several of them retire or pass away or make big deals with high spots or the shoot interview providers (laughs) to tell us what actually happened. It's a fascinating situation. And Darren, I'll concede some of your points do have merit. I joke with you about the tinfoil hat kind of thing simply because it's (laughs) low-hanging fruit. But as far as saying Montreal was a work, I don't know. And I'm one of the guys who will tell anyone who listens that Kanye Taylor Swift was absolutely a word. So I'm just, I, I, I can't get there, man. I just, I can't get there. So Gino, I'll give you, I'll give you one more. Is Vince a litigious person? No. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this. 
Brett's got a film crew with him. Yeah, this, this, so, this is a good point, yeah. He just so happened to be filming a documentary that ends up being called Wrestling with Shadows, which, of course, really becomes about Brett's journey through this 1997 and his entire contractual issue and the night in Montreal. Now, one of the big no-nos that you can't do from a legal standpoint you can't be mic'd up in a meeting with somebody and not have that person sign a waiver acknowledging that you're mic'd up. That doesn't work in court. And use that audio in a publication. It's against the law. Now, Brett goes into a room with Vince to talk about the finish of the match. The crew of Wrestling With Shadows has Brett mic'd up, and they record the meeting. The meeting recording is used in the documentary. Vince is not aware that Brett is mic'd up, supposedly, and he does not sue him for using that audio in the documentary, where Vince has been known to sue everybody for, for using their name out on the indies for the littlest small things that he could just just because. How in the world does he not file a lawsuit against Brett, the audio engineers, and everybody behind that documentary for using audio that, that he never signed off on using when he sues for every piece of intellectual property that he's ever so-and-so created? That's a valid point. I'll yeah. give you that. There, there are some great points, and that's that's I'm. I think I I land right in the middle of the two of you. I'm not. I I can be coerced kind of either way because there's just so many things that don't add up to where I I fall. I this okay. This will will make me think that it it was real. This will make me think that it was set up. So it's I, it, this is a, just an unbelievably fun and interesting debate here, and conversation to have. I'll, here's where I'll end it. Here's my final point. Then we'll get. To- Here's what I genuinely think happened. I genuinely think Brett hated Sean or, you know, had problems with him. Okay. Sean, the same with Brett. I de- I genuinely think that there was the disagreement on the match and what was going to happen. I think all that is true. I think the Montreal Screwjob is what they came up with to appease Brett. And they sold him on the Schwanz. You're going to leave here off the biggest story in wrestling history. And all WCW has to do is take this with you and run with it however they want. They're going to get you off this controversy, and they're going to be able to do whatever they want with it. Of course, we know WCW completely dropped the ball with it because, in my opinion, Vince knew that they were dumb and they he did, knew- and he said it to Brett. He said it to Brett multiple times WC, when, when he was trying to keep Brett. They'll yeah. never know what to do with a Bret Hart. And, and he was, I, and he was right. Think, and I think he said to Bret, sold him on this whole thing. You're going to walk out of here, the Canadian hero you want to be. You can, you know, we're going to cut out of the pay-per-view right away. You can do whatever you want around the ring. Sell the thing as much as you want. You can go to WCW off this huge story. You'll be bigger than ever. All the while knowing that Bischoff was going to screw the whole damn thing up. That is what I think actually happened. Here's my question. I have one question to this, 
And it's not necessarily a bone of contention because if that was what happened, it wouldn't be among the hundred most surprising things that could have potentially been conceived. Here's my question. What incentive would Brett have to lie about all of this to the other guys? And even today, yeah, he's not necessarily under contract with the WWE. He's not under any sort of an NDA that we know of. Why would he stay quiet about any of this when he documents everything, has no problem throwing anybody under the bus about yep. anybody? Why wouldn't he say anything it's a good, about it's a great this? rebuttal point too? Good. And, and in your and in your words, I can answer that. Oh, cool. I like this. <laughs> nice. This is go. good. Brett, we all agree that Brett takes himself probably too seriously. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think he's genuinely concerned if it came out that all of this was done to appease him and give him a send-off as a Canadian hero to have his ego, you know, however stroked and, and put together to send him off on on silver wings to WCW, he genuinely believes it would tarnish his legacy. Yeah, that that and that makes sense. Maybe. That's what's and and that. Yeah, I, I love this. I mean, I love this conversation, and and I think Andrew kind of hit the nail on the head at the beginning. This is definitely going to be the longest show we've ever done, and very close to going as long as that. The actual we're getting paper. there. We're, we're getting, getting there. there. We're getting there, and and I mean. Now we get to the match And I think the one thing I forget um, About this match Because again We've talked for 2 hours and 15 minutes And we haven't discussed the match And and when he won one bit This match was on the way To becoming really really good I mean that's no surprise With these two guys But the intensity Okay there there's a fight this this match, okay, first off, huge pop for Brett, obviously. And JR gets his line, smart money, this will never happen again. And then Sean goes right after Brett. They're brawling, and the bell still has not rung. And then they're outside the ring, just super intense, back and forth. And they are laying it in thick. And we just see the chemistry with these two guys in like in the crowd over the railing, the way they, you know, just every little back and forth is pretty smooth. It looks good. And you, you, we see Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson out there because they're both like like Andrew said. This is where Vince is probably panicking now, and he's going, "I, I really don't know what's going to happen. We think we know what's going to happen. I want to make sure Brett doesn't try to go rogue or go the other way or or nothing or you know." So he's out there trying to make sure everything goes goes smoothly. King even says at one time, "What the hell is Vince doing out here? Like, what's McMahon doing out here?" Um, we get these two guys; they're brawling in the aisle. Brett with a back body drop on the floor And then a suplex um, And then Sean, he just nails Pat Patterson, which was yeah. kind of funny Just clocks him with a right uh, And the refs are just getting Laid out all over There's about four or five referees following these two guys As they fight all over As, as well as Vince and Patterson There is, I think they go for about 12 to 15 minutes Outside the ring before this match even starts, Darren, and and then the bell rings and the crowd is really getting into it. But this is like two different matches, and then obviously the screw job at the end. And if the if the first part of this match was just like a, a street fight that we would see maybe two years later in the WWF, 
It would have been a fun 10 to 12 minute brawl And then we get them into the ring And they pick things up And we start to get a little more wrestling It's still got kind of the fight feel all throughout I just forget how good this match was Because we all we remember is the, the finish Yeah, and at this point of, of his career I, I, I'll be honest with you I hated Shawn Michaels Me too, I loved him I could not stand his arrogant face I couldn't stand how far he took the stuff. I mean, I was only 14. I thought sticking the flag in your pants and humping the flag on the floor was disgusting. Wiping his uh, nose with it. It was in his nostril, yeah. like picking his I nose. Thought, I thought it, it, it was taking things too far. Uh, when he gets thrown into the crowd at one point, there's guys in the crowd that are hitting him. I mean, do you see it? There, there, there's a guy behind him, and he's literally giving him like forearm shivers to his back. And there's like, you know, Montreal police in the crowd trying to separate them. I mean, it's wild what's going on here. And, you know, I could see why they had people out there because I think, the, you know, they knew that they were going in the crowd. Uh, I think they wanted to try to keep some semblance of order. And I also think having Vince out there spoke to, you know, having the Vince character. Um, you know, as far as the match, so different than anything they've ever done before. Mm-hmm. It's you feel the animosity, you feel the passion, you feel the hatred. Uh, it's a brawl, then it's a wrestling match. Obviously, the ending kind of comes, you know, a, a pretty much out of nowhere. Um, but there's wild stuff. I mean, there's a there's a, a chant at one point. Sean is gay. Yep. I, it's it's wild what's going on. The figure four spots when Brett started doing that modified figure four of the ring post. I thought oh, that was I love that's one of my favorite uh, things ever. Uh, favorite moves. That, that looks so painful. It, it might not hurt at all. It looks so good. I thought that was one of the coolest spots that they did. And I know they did it several times. Uh, anytime Sean even connects on a punch, all you hear is booze throughout the crowd. Yeah. Uh, you know, things are running hot. Um, you know, then we get, then we get to the end. Now, Here's another thing you talked about with Earl, Andrew, that you don't believe anything he says. Earl says he got grabbed right before he was going out there and told, Sean's going to put him in the in the sharpshooter. You're going to call for the bell. And then, you know, it was told, look, you're, you're either calling for it or Vince is calling. Or, you know, so, you know, Brett, don't sign your paychecks. So when that sharpshooter goes on, you call for the bell. Okay. Which is what we see. Here's another oddity. What happens right before Sean puts Brett into the sharpshooter? He messes up the sharpshooter. No, is, is, you have you have the ref take a bump. Yeah, Earl takes a bump, and he's out for a couple of you know a couple of seconds. Isn't it convenient that just as Sean starts to put the sharpshooter on here, Earl, who has his back to him, starts to come together, and now Sean turns him over, and Earl pops up and hey, hey, ring the bell. But if, but if that wasn't planned at all, because Earl was told, just look for the time that Sean puts him in the chop shooter, and you call for the bell, or else Vince is going to call it. But there just so happened to be a, a very bump. convenient ref bump right before that move was put on. Again, just another thing that actually happened in the match that, to me, raises a red flag of, there's another thing that somebody said, that when you take a look at the match and something that happened in the match, Andrew, eh, that doesn't exactly seem kosher. 
Gino, if you want to in post production, put in the X Files theme right about here. <laughs> the truth is out there. Hold on. So, so yeah, we're we're yeah. go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. No, I I like this match for what it was. Obviously, before the finish, them going into the crowd is something that. Just it didn't happen in WWF at the time. Mm-hmm. This was something that maybe you expect to see in ECW at a bingo hall. You don't expect to see it in front of 20,000 people going into the crowd, going up and down this rows of seats. You don't expect that. Sign of the times. HBK humps the flag, uses it to wipe his butt and his nose, whatever. Nothing happens to him. 15 years later at a show in Brazil, Chris Jericho essentially does the same thing. They have to smuggle Chris Jericho out of the country. Jericho gets suspended for a month. They wind up having to do this big apology tour because there was a Brazilian general in the crowd that took exception to all of this. It's just a reminder that we're not in the attitude era any anymore. Anytime you look at something like this, I'm going to be the contrarian. Darren, you liked the ring post figure four. Gino, yeah. you loved the ring post figure four. Guys, I hated it. Really? I thought it, I thought it was overly scripted. It never ended a match. And if you can hang on in there for 10 seconds, Brett's supposed to get counted out and you win. Yeah, the the the, the, the hanging on, he did a good job when he was before he was heel Brett of always usually doing it for five yeah. and then releasing. But if even ne- then, but, if you're only doing it for five seconds, why should I care? It just, no, that, and that's a, point, it a good point. It resonated it's, with me the way that it should have. Because on paper, it's a really cool I love concept. I just freaking love it. On paper. But in practice, eh, it just never sat well with me. Now, the screw job being the screw job, you know, we can, we've already dissected that a lot. People are going to dissect that from now until the end of time or wrestling or the internet, whichever comes first. But I agree with Gino. This was a match that had the first 20 minutes of a five-star match written all over it. We just didn't get the back half. Yeah. It, after the first you know, 15 minutes or so, they come into the ring. And it, it takes about a minute or two when they're in the ring. And then they get into a, a match. And it's, it's, it's still a brawl, but it's, it's a little more... Clean moves we get a little more Counters at everything though In this is Snug we believe these Guys who have had these great wrestling Matches before we believe they really Fight and it's funny with all the emotion between The two of them they just did such a damn good Job making everything really Count uh, Brett goes Outside he locks in that figure four around the Ring post um, and JR and the King, they are going crazy. They're super into this. JR is intense. He keeps screaming. You know, he's if Brett, if Brett loses, he's done. That's what uh, JR had said. If Brett loses this match, this is the rumors are this is going to be his final match in WWF. And now Brett's got the figure four locked on inside. Sean turns it over. Brett gets quickly to the ropes. And then they start to set up that final spot. And uh, Darren mentioned we get the ref bump and. Sean goes to lock in the, the sharpshooter And one of the stories that I believe Brett tells Is that as he's trying to put it in He's doing it wrong And Brett tells Sean Oh you're doing it wrong Which is so funny Brett's still trying to help him get through, Help them both get through this awesome match 
Like literally as Sean is about to screw him <laughs> As he's putting you know The sharpshooter on and Sean knows what's about to happen And he locks in that sharpshooter And Earl boom He's up he's over And Brett is in I mean The sharpshooter gets locked in For no longer And it's not even ever really cleanly locked in Sean's kind of got it in a little goofy No more than Two and a half seconds before He Earl rings the bell and you actually hear Vince You know screaming To ring the effing bell You know many times he's telling the the timekeeper And Vince is standing right outside The ring we can see Vince now You could tell as this was about to happen Vince gets closer to the ring and he's standing Right outside and and we see him And and then they ring The bell and again You know they cut it off on the WWE network a lot of the stuff that happened After the match in fact it's the, the the bell rings and there's literally about 25 more seconds before the, the show is off And I don't know if there's ever been a match And obviously Sean knew what was going on, Vince knew what was going on I don't know if I've ever seen a match before I mean, it, maybe Ric Flair 92 Rumble Where somebody wins the title and is out like that Like so quickly, just out, no celebration in the ring, no nothing Sean's gone, v- Brett just kind of has that look back over to Vince like are you kidding me this is this really is what you did and then Brent you know he spits on Vince he goes over to the announce tables and he starts trashing them and uh, he's you know doing uh, in WCW and fingers and cart- writing it into the air there and um and this is all the before the, the all the backstory uh, they go backstage and everything that Darren talked about earlier with the the punch and everything and this is this is it for Bret Hart Until, what is it, it's 10 years later 11 years later before he ends up Coming back for the first time And the one thing I, I noticed that I had never noticed before um, King and JR, you know they don't know What's going on, you, you can tell Because JR says he, He's quiet And then he says What happened? What happened? Bret Hart gave up in the sharpshooter Almost like a questioning He doesn't like say it like You know like he would emphatically And then From the finish King doesn't say one word Nope. Nothing he doesn't say one thing He's like frozen because A lot of the wrestlers are bothered as hell by this Like if you would screw Bret Your main guy what would you do to any one of us I mean Jerry's been a booker Promoter you know he's had companies That he was in charge of and everything And so I, I, I'm and hearing him talk after how he was kind of pissed off and, and frozen. We hear the stories about Mick Foley and Furnace and these guys all who are going to quit. Bulldog's gone after this for a couple years. He's not back. Nightheart's gone. He comes back. He has a little run. You know, they they kind of embarrass Nightheart on Raw the next night. He's gone. Um, following this, there's a couple weeks where they tease Bret Hart coming back. There's even one night where they say Bret Hart is there. He shows up and then they have like a. A little person, Midget Who they were referring to at the time Come out to Brett's music So, I mean, this is it This sparks Brett going to WCW Which doesn't work But it does spark the the Mr. McMahon character Which does work So much we've dissected So much still, to, you know That we can go back and forth on uh, on with this It's just, the one thing that I hate Is I wish we could have gotten a little bit more Of this match even We could have gotten another nice 10 minutes out of these guys You you really You really could have And I mean, because like Andrew said, this was on its way, you know, to being a five-star match. But you know, it, it, you know, you have this match end now. 
you know, again, Brett supposedly is concerned enough to talk to Earl, which Brett says he did do. Uh, and, you know, I, I take Brett at that, you know, he probably did, um, you know, or, or, or that's part of the story. Um, and, you know, well, okay, you're concerned that Earl's going to count you out. You know, by count you out, I mean count three. Um, and you know that, you know, Sean's not going to overpower Brett. Brett. Brett's a stronger guy. Um, so he's not going to hold you down for a three count. But you're going to allow the guy to put you in a submission hole where you can lose without doing anything. Okay. So apparently Brett was dumb enough to allow that to happen. Then they go backstage. Well, you know, you have this whole thing go on. Now, if you've never seen this, um, you know, if you watch this on WWE Network, it cuts out. You know, Brett spits at McMahon. You can see this on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah conveniently enough, there's a there's a close-up of Vince. You know, they, like someone in production went, oh, close-up on Vince. You know, because now you get the camera close-up on Vince. And Brett goes ape shit, destroys cameras, you know, writes WCW with his, with his hand, the fingers in the air and stuff. Then he goes backstage. And he's getting undressed in the locker room. And Brett says something very unusual happened at that point. Shawn Michaels is in Brett's locker room. Yep. Brett says Shawn never changes in his locker room. It, he can't even think of another time. So Shawn apparently just screwed Brett over. He said, I, I didn't do this. This wasn't on me. No, he's saying stuff like that. Up, go there. And they conveniently happen to have the film crew back there again. Yeah. And they yeah. happen to capture on the audio Brett saying, you didn't have a hand in that, Sean? And you hear Sean go, oh, I swear to God, my hands are clean on this one. I, I gave the belt back to Vince. I told him I don't want any part of it. I mean, it sounded, if you ever listen to that clip, it sounds so forcibly scripted, terribly acted. It really does. I, again, just all part of the weird stuff that goes on in Survivor Series 97. To be fair, a lot of Sean's delivery, both on camera and off, was likely impacted by the fact that he was ingesting a small pharmacy every single day. <laughs> that's true. And that's so, what makes this so difficult is that one yeah. of these guys, literally, we can't take anything that Sean says for anything, right? Right. Like, so we only are getting the Brett version of this, and that's what 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 is a point that actually I think helps Darian side a little in that if we could get two clean guys versions of the the guys that remember didn't have foggy brain, then maybe we could we could you know catch something even more. But it's hard because it's it's an easier cover up for a conspiracy when you only have one of the guys who we have to worry about keeping his story together, which is Brett. Because anything that Sean says, we're all going to kind of roll our eyes. Right. And even with Brett, there are certain things that he said in his book. The phrase with tears in his eyes was said about five or six times in that Mm -hmm. book to the point where it almost becomes a running gag because Brett's using it as a way to pump himself up. Again, wrestling is built on tall tales. I feel like we need to start making shirts. Wrestling is built on tall tales. That's on the Andrew line with the big man that can move. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying we can make some money on this as a side business. Get it on pro wrestling tees and see Let's if they do fly. It. <laughs> um, at any rate, though, again, it's one of those things. We're not going to know the full story until somebody, likely Vince, either retires or passes away. And that's not going to be for a long time because I'm fully convinced Vince has found the formula to live about 200 years. Uh, it's just one of those things where 
regardless of what you believe, whether it's a work, whether it's a legitimate screw job, whether Brett legitimately didn't get what he deserved, whether he was in on it, whatever. The thing that I think anybody can agree on is you wish it would have ended better and that he deserved a little bit better than what he wound up getting. Yeah, that's that's a great, great point. And we've gone through this uh, a ton. I'm sure on future shows that are before and after this, you know, when we ever we end up doing a, a 97 SummerSlam or maybe some of the in your house or the bad blood, I'm sure we'll do one time with the, you know, the taker Sean Hell in the cell match and and then, you know, the DX, you know, pay-per-view after in the rumble and what happens in 98. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of the WCW, you know, into 98 and 99 and 2000 a little with Brett. It's um, it's I think you hit it, Andrew. It's kind of a bummer that we just didn't get a little. I would have loved to see Brett was so good at this time. He was still at the top of his career, and then when he went to WCW, he kind of said, which is a point that Darren made. Also, he said, "You know what? Everybody said I took myself too seriously for all these years, and I just went to WCW and I didn't. I just didn't. I just did what they told me to do and did it. And I didn't care about anything backstage. I didn't care anything going on. I didn't care about making everything a little extra special. I just took the paycheck, did what they asked me." And went home and it's a bummer because that wasn't Who Bret Hart was No, Bret Hart was the guy who documented everything Every day Bret Hart was the guy Who would have been a great producer of wrestling He'd be a great agent backstage He would have been if he didn't have The problems and then whatever everything that happened With Owen in 1999 And, and another you know sad thing that, that, that I think about with this One thing that Bret mentions in a lot of his um, uh, You know either his book and, and some of the stuff that he talks about He blames himself a lot for what happened to Owen because Brett feels like if he were still around That would have never happened Because Brett had the kind of clout backstage To have said we're not doing this Owen's not doing this He doesn't feel comfortable This is not going to happen And one of the things that I actually heard in, in what was kind of a weird crazy sense of irony right? There was a little, the little person That comes out um, and, and it pretends to be Brett When DX brings him out you know, In the next few weeks on Raw following this That was the same Little person midget who Was supposed to do The fall with Owen Hart When he came down and fell They were supposed to do that together It was supposed to be Owen and another guy with him And they ended up scrapping him And he ends up getting his life saved by that And what a weird twist of irony It's the same guy who comes out and he's like making fun of Brett That ends up not going with Owen In 99 And I just think of all these little things that like If Brett stays and he doesn't leave it just feels to me like we, we it would have only helped WWF, which ends up hitting a home, like going hot as can be moving forward. But I, we we've talked to before. Think of how many of the, you know, more Brett Austin going forward. How about when The Rock starts to come into things? How about Brett Angle? Oh my gosh! Like like inject that into me right now. Like some Kurt Angle Brett Hart. You know, like it just it's just a bummer. And then like I said, Brett being. You know, a, an on-screen commissioner Brett being able to get in the corner of, of You know, other wrestlers Brett helping, coming out of His little mini retirements that he might be able to have To put the new star over I just, we could have gotten so much more Out of this, which is Someone like me as a Brett fan Was one of my, uh, one of my you know, biggest Of woulda, coulda, shoulda, wish we could have had So, um, let, close, give me some of your Closing thoughts, we can maybe go around once or twice More and then, and put a bow on this Uh Darren, I mean, top to bottom, a show we'll never forget. And when it's ring in ring quality, I think we all were a little disappointed in it. But you, you give me those the the 
Team USA, Team Canada tag I, I liked the debut of Kane And I was fine with the with what they did With the, the Nation of Domination match And then this, it's not a horrendous Pay-per-view and ring quality It's just, there are three or four matches That kind of drag And there's, there's almost like an hour worth If we could have just chopped an hour off this Then the show would have been so much better Yeah, I mean, look The show is remembered the way it should be remembered It's, you know It's one theme that kind of, you know, takes over everything. Uh, and even if it didn't, even if that match ended and Brett stayed in WWE, if we got the back half of that match and you got a four and three quarter to a five star match, the pay per view would still be remembered as mm-hmm. yeah, that's true. This, that's true. this amazing main event between Brett and Sean, who always lit the world on fire when they got in the ring together. Um, so, you know, it would have been remembered. For the same two guys, maybe would have just been remembered a little bit differently. But look, I mean, what this show really does is this is the fork in the road of a company that really kind of, you know, made a drastic change to the direction that they were going in. Um, They went from having one individual as the face of their company to suddenly being gone, changing the attitude of the company, changing the characteristics of the company, changing a lot of the things that the company believed in and and how they presented their product uh, in order to try and compete on a national scale with a rival, which is something that they did not have to do for quite some time. Um, So this show is remembered for the screw job, as it should be, but it should also be remembered as the fork in the road where WWE had a choice to go left or right and uh, and the choice that they made is what paved the way for pretty much the next five, six years of what the company ended up becoming. That's a really good way to put it. And uh, I'm going to piggyback off of something Gino said. If you start this pay-per-view with Team Canada versus Team USA, just scrap the first two matches entirely. It's, I don't want to say a good pay-per-view. I still think there's some stuff that's lacking there. And I agree. It's a far, far, far better pay-per-view than when you get 15 minutes of tag teams nobody cares about, nine minutes of Kurgan the Interrogator, and six minutes of meaningless promos that wind up not really doing anything or going anywhere. But Darren's absolutely right. This is going to be remembered regardless of anything else that happened before it. For what happened in the main event, this was something that when we say change the industry, and that's something, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot in various industries as something that changed the industry or a pivotal point, or as Tony Schiavone would say, the greatest night in the history of our sport, as he said a hundred times on Nitro between 1999 and 2001, Um, when that happened. Watching it live, I was doing the same thing Jim Ross was doing, saying, what happened? Yep. What I was, let's see, this was 97. I remember being 10 years old, sitting exactly where I'm sitting in my parents' room watching it. I mean, just exactly, like, I can feel it. Yeah, I was eight, nine years old at the time going, what the heck's going on here? And I don't think my dad had the answers to what was going on. He had subscriptions to all of the wrestling, uh, you know, inside dirt sheets at the time uh, stuff that you'd find on the old AOL message boards that got put together. Uh, So I knew more than the average eight or nine year old that was into wrestling at the time. But even so it was a case where when I went to school the next day and started talking wrestling with people, nobody knew what was going on. 
Yeah. And that's something that I'm always going to remember. And if anything, the conversation that the three of us had reinforced that 23 years later, none of us really still know what's going on. The more things change, the more things stay the same because there's so much that we're not going to know about what happened in Montreal until certain people retire or pass away. And even then, will someone say anything after being silent for 23 years? Will that person have credibility? We don't know. It's one of those things that truly shaped an entire industry, really, because WCW got handed Bret Hart, did nothing with him. Standards and practices came in and neutered a lot of WCW's product. Bischoff gets fired. They bring in Vince Russo. That doesn't work. They bring Bischoff back. Bischoff tries to buy the company from Turner, doesn't get the TV time. WWF purchases WCW. Monday Night War over. If this goes a different direction, how things happen moving forward is anybody's guess. And it's one of those things that, in retrospect, makes this pay-per-view one of the most important ones in the history of professional wrestling. Yeah, it's some it's a a show we had to do. It's a show that will probably go down as one of the longer shows we'll we'll ever end up having because there just was so much to talk about and probably so many things that we still will will go back later the next day or two and be like, oh man, that was probably something I could have mentioned or that that's what that's what's so fascinating about this the discussion on this topic and we'll we'll hit on as I said when we talk about other shows we'll 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 maybe put the bow on uh, on different things we didn't talk about but. Just a blast to discuss the Montreal screw job. Having uh, you know, all of us kind of on slightly different sides of where we we stand. Is but we we I think you hit it perfectly, Andrew. None of us know. We can think, we can assume this was what we think or we feel happened, but we just don't know. That's why this is such a fascinating and, and polarizing topic. So, my friend DZ, it is up to you. Um, you are the next choice for what pay per view we are going to be talking about next week. Big bucks, no whammies. Big bucks, no whammies. Big bucks, no whammies. Stop. Uh, so I really thought about, I, I could have gone one or two different different directions. I was thinking about continuing along the path of, you know, the controversial stuff, you know, the finger poke of Doom Nightmare or even the horrendous pay-per-view with Russo and Hogan and Jarrett and trying to keep this whole weird conspiracy stuff going. But then I thought it was more important to piggyback off of the Survivor Series and kind of show where WWE goes from this point. Uh, so I actually selected the next big pay-per-view after this, Royal Rumble 1998. Cool. Nice. Good one. I like that. That's a lot yeah, of fun. We're going to see the rise show. of Austin. It's a good show. Cool. That's a good pick. We're going to be talking Royal Rumble 1998 next week. Andrew, my friend, give everybody your plugs where we can find you and then uh, your homework for next week, Royal Rumble 98. At Andrew Champagne on Twitter, and you mentioned the homework for next week. I've got a lot of homework for Saturday. Uh, Belmont Stakes Day, of course, an 11 race program. I'm going to be doing a lot of really cool stuff on Twitter and on racingpicks.com. I'll be putting some spot plays up on Racing Picks. I'll have some stuff up on my site as well, andrewchampagne.com. As far as Saturday goes, we'll see. I'm going to be trying to put together some pretty cool things for people to enjoy. Follow me, and hopefully we can make some money together and have some fun doing it. DZ, where can we find you? Yep, Twitter, uh, at the Track 7. Also, uh, you know, obviously I'll be into the Belmont stuff on Saturday, although – it is my son's uh, seventh birthday on Saturday. Oh, happy so, birthday. Very yeah. cool. 
little Anthony is getting uh, getting bigger. But so I, I don't know how much time. I will be able to spend on on social priorities, media. Darren. Priorities. <laughs> but we will get Darren. We will get Darren's voice a little earlier in the show. If you just tune in for the wrestling part and you want to go back and listen to some wrestling, Darren's going to talk or listen to some racing. Darren is going to talk a little uh, a little bit about that Belmont Saturday card with us. So, fellas, awesome stuff. Thanks again. It's up for. 98 Royal Rumble for next week So those of you who are watching along And uh, and uh, and going along with us You have a, a week to get in The Royal Rumble 1998 Folks That's actually going to do it for this episode Of That's What G Said A big thank you to Darren, a big thank you to Andrew A big thank you to all of our sponsors And I hope you enjoyed this episode What you're going to hear next Is the That's What, the, That's what G Said theme song From my good friend Joey Cleveland Thanks a lot folks, have a great weekend